You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning at 7:45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. Good morning and welcome to Friday's OTB AM. It's just gone at quarter to eight on this Friday morning, chilly Friday morning. I would like to have you alongside us, myself and Owen. Good morning to you, Owen. A very good morning to you, Adrian. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm a bit bunged up, to be honest with you. I'm a bit sort of been suffering from a little bit of man cold, man flu during the week. So I'm a bit bunged up. Also sort of pulled a bit of a muscle in my back yesterday. So I'm a bit moany. How did that happen? Uh, innocuously opening, opening a, a door, which is really what tends to happen to me these days. It's uh, You opened a door? Yeah. And you pulled your back? Yeah. That's what tends to happen. How big was this door? It was like something in Hogwarts. House door, house door, yeah. Normal, normal size door. I've, I've, I've managed to do it quite a bit recently. Uh, searching for change in my pocket, gone into a toll one day. Back, back went out. Wow. It's no fun. You're, um, you're, you need to work on your posture. Um, it's true. So we've a busy uh, star pack show, and I think it's fair enough to stay coming up over the next little bit. But one of the things that jumped out this morning as we were going across the back pages, like it is the eve of the uh, World Cup, and we're all getting uh, Six Nations too carried away with ourselves. Um, and Eddie Jones, like just a sort of generally dislikable character, has been at it again with some unbelievable comments about <laughs> Ireland. It's like this sort of stuff. On, I mean, look, building on like you know, everybody remembers the scummy Irish stuff uh, from last year. Like it's just. <laughs> At some point or another, somebody's going to have to take this guy in hand. Like, these comments are absolutely outrageous. Um, I'll give you a bit of a flavour of them here from the, the Irish Mail this morning. John says stuff like, Ireland are the best side in the world, very well coached and drilled side, and of particular things that they do well in a game. I mean, this is, this is typical Eddie Jones guff. Outrageous commentary. He's Such a slur. I'm very, very happy. It's, it's always my favourite day of the year. The new year doesn't kick in until Eddie Jones is in front of a microphone. So yesterday was January 1st for me. My, my 2019 has finally got up and running because without Eddie Jones, all of our lives would be significantly more boring. We yeah. would care a little bit less about the Six Nations. We'd still care about it and we'd care a little bit less about playing England mm. uh, the weekend after next. So I'm happy that he's back. I'm happy that he's in front of a microphone and I will be a sad man today or if you decide to get rid of him or if he walks. To stuff like to beat Ireland, we need to compete brutally in all contest areas of the game. Like these kind of slurs on our nation. I mean, it's up there with Martin Johnson, you know, and the red carpet business. Like really, I, when you think about it, do you, do you think that he actually goes out of his way to be snide and sarcastic? I don't think he does. I think it's just the way I think he there's is. There's a bit of the, do you know, like in a less, far less successful way from Eddie Jones' point of view. There's a little bit of the um, Alex Ferguson's Jose Mourinho's about what he says, like, he says that and everybody kind of says, well, that's, oof, there's a deep message now in there somewhere, and he could potentially say the exact opposite and everybody would be saying, oof, he's, you know, the mind games, in fact, that's exactly the essence of the piece, that the mind games have started, even though he's falling over himself to mm. pay compliments to the Irish team. You mentioned January 1st, like, in some ways, some of his quotes yesterday, it might have been April 1st, he's talking about he may potentially, in a World Cup year, by the way, uh, start to play nine forwards in a game. So he feels that there's two things to it. One, he might play Jack Knoll, who's a back, as a forward. And then, as an addition to that, he might well play nine forwards. Uh, I think it's... I think he's panicking, to be honest with you. Like, results have obviously not gone his way now. they a decent November series, clearly. But I do think he's panicking. Like, it's World Cup here. If this stuff was any good, he'd have been doing it two years ago. He had said he had sampled it at some point with Japan, that he had uh, brought in a... Um, He'd given a forward a backs jersey and he played him in a slightly different way or whatever it was. Um, but, I mean, like, that's Japan who are generally trying to upset one of the larger nations. I think that 
if he's introducing this, if he's serious about this idea, and it's quite possible that he ain't, but if he is, in a World Cup year, I think he's panicking. Really? Yeah. I fear a massive England backlash this calendar year, whether it comes in the Six Nations or whether it comes in the World Cup. Mm. I really do think that we've been very quick to write off the Eddie Jones era, and there is a sting in the tail of his With good his reason. Tenure. With good reason, don't get me wrong, with good reason. Uh, like, I, I do think that they've had their injury troubles over the past couple of years. Like, let's not forget the base they came from going into last year's Six Nations. Mm. We were talking about England as an extremely good side, uh, one of the world beaters looking ahead to 2019, potentially the best chance one of the Six Nations sides had of winning the World Cup. Now, 18 months later, things are looking significantly different. But if you put them between now and September, I think there's enough time for them to get things back together. Dylan Hartley's obviously injured, not in the squad. The two Vuna Speaking of likeable characters. Yeah, yeah, speaking of likeable characters. Well, that's the thing. Like, There's a lot of dislikable characters in that camp, and quite often dislikable characters are very, very successful sportsmen. And that has proved to be the case quite often with great English rugby teams as well. Like the two Vinipolas being back, Billy Vinipola being back for England is obviously a humongous asset to them, something that they didn't have uh, in, in last year's Six Nations, pretty much for all of last year's Six Nations, as far as I remember, right? Mm. Um, so, the, like, the whole face has changed for me, or has the potential to change, I think, England. We, we've got to a stage where we used to hate Eddie Jones mm. because they were successful. Then we went into a stage 12 months ago of laughing at Eddie Jones because he wasn't that much of a threat to us. We've, we're in big, big danger of continuing that trend of laughing at him. Whereas he is still a very, very dangerous man to us. And I, I, like, I mean, I, I think I think it makes England, that more interesting. Yeah, look, it's fair. Uh, I, you know, life would be a bit more boring without him. I'd be, I'd be easy with that. Well, if you're I'd happy with okay a boring life, then good for you. <laughs> I love the way you've made that uh, analogy or that stretch. Uh, so that's the Eddie Jones story. We're going to get into a little bit more on that uh, in just a little bit, and plenty more interesting stuff obviously coming up between now and the uh, end of the show. We've got the sports pages uh, that we have known are going to get stuck into in just a few minutes' time. Plenty to get into there as well. Lots of uh, good stuff across the back pages this morning. We've John Walters on the show this morning, and we're really looking forward to that. Uh, off the ball co-commentator John Walters, of course, and Gary Breen as well to preview the weekend's uh, Premier League. And there's plenty of other interesting storylines as well, including all that Bielsa stuff. Uh, during the week that we put to the lads as well. Uh, in, uh, spying on the Dobbs was a story that um, will probably ring a bell for some um, astute viewers this morning who would have been paying attention uh, seven or eight years ago when Rowan, Rory O'Connor of uh, the Irish Independent wrote a story about uh, the what the Dobbs were getting up to in early morning training. So we're going to get the inside scoop from the man who got the scoop and that's coming your way at uh, just after half past eight. We're going to talk uh, rugby as always with Quinny on a Friday. That's uh, about ten to nine. And then um, myself and Owen are going to pick our winners and losers of the week just after nine o'clock. So that's what's on the agenda. One man who I'm not sure is it's going to be in the winners or losers section this week. He's a bit of a winner and a bit of a he's had a bit of a loss as well yesterday. Is uh, Jerome Quinn who works for the Higher Education uh, GEA and uh, produces video content for them. He was at the UCD game yesterday and uh, he was a bit of a loser in terms of one of his equipment, but he was a winner in terms of capturing one of the most satisfying ways you can capture a goal. Here's Conor McCarthy hitting the back of the net. I'm not sure. So there's two, two ways that you can score an unbelievably satisfying goal. One is that sweet spot off the post where you can mm. hear the clang of the post. A couple of and penalties second, in the Derby Southampton game during the week that clangered backed off. Penalties are a beautiful opportunity. Yeah. Uh, the second one is this, when you hit the camera and uh, the camera inevitably gets broken. And it's funny from a Premier League perspective, but uh, I, I think uh, when it's actually kind of closer to home, I, I hope we can get a new camera, basically. I think a drop kick. continue to see these goals. most satisfying goal for me is a drop kick. Oh, well, yeah, drop kick back then. You as, know, really, as, as a player, I wonder, do you get that satisfaction of hitting the camera? Yeah, half volley. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, he did say that uh, in the middle of the game, Conor McCarthy, one of his teammates, had said to him, you've, you've hit the camera there, mate. Um, but he did confirm that he's not going to personally pay for it, but that UCD should sort him out. <laughs> Very good. Uh, nice goal. Uh, going to get stuck into the back page now and let you know what's happening uh, right across these newspapers this morning. We're going to kick off uh, with just a bit of a recap of the Irish Daily Mail that I mentioned a little bit earlier on. Jones, Ireland, the best team in the world, is outrageous, slur. Uh, from Eddie Jones this morning. O'Neill back to Forest uh, Trail. This is the photograph of Martin Neil uh, back at Nottingham Forest and aiming to bring uh, Roy Keane with him as well. And Martin fires a warning to make over fixtures uh, by Philip Quinn. This is Martin Neil saying that he had uh, picked too many away tough friendlies and for Mick not to do the same. Dublin's wannabes make a burn cup uh, poison chalice for Westmead is the other one of the major uh, stories of uh, this morning that's across the top page there as well. A picture of the new Westmead manager, Jack Cooney, on ahead of the O'Byrne Cup final this weekend. And whether Westmead should go with a full team and get chastened by the Dublin thirds or actually are they better off just putting on a second or third team and getting beaten anyway? First team. I'm 100% on board with that first team all the way and get the silverware in the bag. The uh, Irish Independent this morning, Bullish Jones, says England squad is very capable of uh, beating Ireland. That's uh, Rory O'Connor, who'll be with us a little bit later. Uh, not to talk rugby this morning. That's the Irish Independent this morning. And also that shot of Martin O'Neill there. Roy can help make Forrest great again, uh, writes Dan McDonnell, who was over at that opening press conference yesterday. That's the Irish Independent today. The uh, Times-Ireland edition, O'Neill, I can adapt to the modern game. This is, again, just more reflections on that. And Damien Lawler, uh, opposition to the hand pass rule, gathers pace, the uh, three hand passes and release it rule. Um, I mean, I don't think we can call it the controversial rule just yet, but it's certainly headed in that direction. The Irish Times, meanwhile, this is uh, a squad to beat Ireland. Jones throws down the gauntlet. This is another line out of that press, Eddie Jones press conference yesterday. That's uh, rugby all the way, of course, in the Irish Times this morning. And then on the Irish Examiner, the price is right, question mark. GA bosses planning admission hikes for league campaign. That's the Irish Examiner this morning. Should mention as well that we hope uh, Jerome Quinn's camera gets fixed because there's I think they were actually live streaming eight uh, games across the Electric Ireland Fitzgibbon and Sigerson Cup. I think it was just year. a GoPro or something, was it? Like yeah, I think so. 150 quid jobby. Uh, back page of the Herald is Roy still my first choice. Nottingham boss O'Neill talks of his Irish impact at Euro 2016, and now we're enjoying it, says Paul Pogba, speaking speaking about his new experience at Manchester United. Speaking of his old experience at Manchester United, the back of the sun says, I'll be back on top, Mourinho's vow after Manchester United flop. Now, Jose Mourinho has a gagging order with Manchester United in terms of not being able to speak about his previous situation there. So he spoke in code, really, on his first game doing the Asian Cup for B in Sports yesterday. And uh, there was some sort of veiled dig at players who have a little bit too much power in the dressing room. Now, I have no idea who that player could be that might have wielded a little bit too much power uh, in the Manchester United dressing room. So thank God for that gagging order. Back page of the Irish Daily Star is No Rush and Roy. Keen focus is on Ill Dad. And uh, now for glory uh, is uh, Andy Robertson there, who's uh, signed a new five-year deal at Liverpool. Also as well there on the back of uh, the star, you've got Marcus Rashford set to double his money in a new Manchester United deal worth €170,000 a week. And that is the lead on the back of the mirror. Cashford, United set to double strikers' wages to 150 k a week to scare off summer bids. You've also got Jamie Vardy there dressed as Spider-Man. There's a spider in the Foxes camp, says the headline there. I saw that yesterday with a, a, a photograph and it was like, who's this that's turned up to training in Spider-Man suit? I didn't need to, I didn't need to even check the name. You just knew who it was straight off the bat. Really? Aye, absolutely. You knew that uh, Jamie Vardy was a jokester of the Leicester camp? Jokester. 
I don't know. I, I, yeah, anyway. Back page of the Guardian is player power. United not ready for modern football, says, Manche- says Jose Mourinho. And then finally, the back page of the Racing Post. Free-scoring Canaries can keep hitting the high notes. It's Norwich against Birmingham. It's in the Championship and kicks off at 7.45 this evening. All right, good stuff. Uh, thanks for that for the minute. Oh, and we're going to um, get to John Walters very shortly. We're going to chat to him, uh, potentially get a bit of an injury update for him and, um, yeah, talk to him in a little bit more detail about uh, that Bielsa stuff. He's some interesting stuff to say uh, on that and a few more bits and bobs as well. So plenty to come, as I mentioned, with Alan Quinlan as well joining us a little later in the show. We're going to preview all the weekend's rugby. Rory O'Connor is going to be here to uh, tell us about his own um, spy gate that happened uh, recently enough. But before all of that, uh, we're going to hear from John Giles. He was, as always, on uh, Thursday nights off the ball. He was chatting to Nathan Murphy last night. Here he is on uh, Declan Rice, of course, reckoning that uh, he is like one particular former United player. I'd pay £50 million for him now because I'm thinking four or five years' time, he's going to be worth double that. He's just a top-class player. That if we can get him, would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, and hope, hope we do get him. And we've got Redmond mentioned in, in it. And I think what Mick is doing very well, he, he seems to be getting around players that we didn't go for before. Like, he seems to know Redmond. I, didn't, I never heard of Redmond being any way associated with us. Yeah, yeah, his mother we was saw him coming London. on last night. Did you see him in the match? Yeah, he scored a great goal. Very good. What, what, wouldn't he be great for us? Yeah. We had Redmond and... and, and, and uh, well, it, change, it, it changes the entire outlook for probably the next five, ten years if Declan Rice declares for Ireland. Oh, definitely. No, I'd go for him. I think he's, you say he's worth 50 million now. I think in two or three years' time, he can only get better and be worth more. I, I think he's, he's, I think he's, he's, he's a terrific prospect. Well, he's more than a prospect now. I think he's a real player. He's very young. He's mobile. He's big. He can tackle. He can score a goal. He can he do all the things that midfield players want to do. Yeah, that was John Giles from last night's show talking about the value that he'd have on uh, Declan Rice. And there's plenty more, including comparisons with the former United great. Uh, if you check out that full piece up on our uh, YouTube channel, it's kind of the story that keeps on giving on, isn't it? That Declan Rice story, it's just like every single day there seems to be uh, something new about it. Like, come on, Declan, tell us what's happening. Declan Rice is a John Giles dream. Like, mm. if, he, if John Giles could mould a footballer, it would probably be Declan Rice. Because he does things at both ends of the pitch, as mm. he kind of alluded to there. Uh, he's, you know, the fielders are supposed to be present at both ends of the pitch, according to the John Giles school of thought. And there's some value in that. I mean, you certainly get a bit more bang for your buck from a player if you can do things at both, both ends of the pitch. And I'd imagine uh, Giles watching him on Saturday against Arsenal, intercepting the ball on his own box and scoring at the other ends of the pitch and probably could have scored twice. He really should have had a goal in the first half as well in that encounter. Probably just brings a smile to his face. It's a classic midfielder, a bit of a, an old school player, but also the type of guy who seems to have a bit of a, an old-school mentality. Like I, I haven't seen a debutante as happy while scoring a Premier League goal in a long time. Mm. And I know there's a bit more scrutiny because we're looking at Declan Rice and every little thing he does. No, you're right, him. the smiles in the post-match. It, it, se- it, seems, I don't know, it seems above and beyond any other debut smile and happiness yeah. that we've seen over the It makes the it more years. difficult for him to eventually leave the club, which inevitably he will do when, like John is saying, somebody comes in with 50 million quid. Like, it does make it more difficult because the fans are watching exactly what you're watching and saying, Jesus, this guy's one of us. And well, that's the thing. That the, it also shows that he does have the capacity for a huge amount of emotional attachment to something. Mm. Now, he <laughs> kissed his badge while playing for Ireland, mm. which suggests to me that there was some sort of emotional attachment, which is why I suspect this thing is taking so long. 
Um, Martin O'Neill has held his first press conference, as we've been mentioning, as the new uh, Nottingham Forest manager. He's eyeing promotion, writes Philip Quinn here in the back page of the Irish Daily Mail, and it's generally the theme that's carried across most of the papers. It's uh, another story that's definitely going to keep on giving. There was a whole bunch of Irish journalists clearly over at the press conference yesterday. He's telling uh, Mick McCarthy, like the main Irish line out of it was, make avoid tough away friendlies, which actually felt a little bit disappointing. I kind of thought there was going to be a bit more needle or there was going to be something else for us to get our teeth stuck into. There's every chance that he goes here and on the basis of the stinging that he's picked up at this side of the water uh, is so determined to make a success of this thing that himself and, I mean, the team that he has around him, Steve Guppy and Seamus McDonough and Roy Keane, who it seems like is going to come in with him at some point, actually do end up making a success of this thing. He gets them promoted to the, uh, to the Premier League and suddenly we're all left looking like mugs. I'm not sure we'll be left looking like mugs. The, the, the phrase that we often hear about a new manager coming into a club is that all oh, the players will get a new lease of life, they'll be refreshed, a new voice in the dressing room, etc. Et I, I do wonder if that can actually work in the opposite manner, that a manager can be refreshed by a, a new bunch of players, which obviously Martin O'Neill is going to get now, but also on a continuous level, that you don't have that in international football, you're stuck by international laws, you're stuck by whoever's Irish or whoever has an Irish relative. Whereas, and like this is something that he's always spoken about or had always spoken about as Ireland manager, that we don't have the players. Like Martin O'Neill having transfer windows at his disposal as a manager, it's a very obvious thing to point out, but it might actually lead to a happier Martin mm. O'Neill, refreshing of the squad every few months, every year uh, at worst, uh, might actually lead to a more refreshed, rejuvenated Martin O'Neill, and also it'll take away this ability for him to say, well, my players aren't very good. And also he can get rid of the people who are, listen, you know, saying overtly, we don't like your methods, like it's a bit, like you are saying, a bit more of a difficult thing to do to squeeze people out at an interna- international level. It can be done, but in that instance, it's just a very cold you're not having my methods where you're on the transfer market, good luck to you. Yeah, totally. If, you, if, you're, if you've got that much of a belief and it's that staunch, like Martin O'Neill clearly seems to be, Jose Mourinho is another one, you do need a bit of autonomy in the transfer window to bring in people that share your school of thought or that are uh, kind of like a, a, piece of, a piece of plasticine that you can mould into thinking your way. And obviously Jose Mourinho didn't have that at the end of uh, the last transfer window, which led to a lot of tensions there at Old Trafford. And I don't think the way Martin O'Neill thinks is actually too dissimilar to that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, we're going to see how that pans out over the next while. It's going to be fascinating for us anyway. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, and you know, if Roy ends up doing sort of half the taking half the press conferences that he took when he was there by the time of Ireland, I kind of suspect that he won't. Like I think at club management, it's less acceptable. I mean, actually, maybe in international management, the point is also stands that it's less acceptable to put your assistant manager out to do the media duties. Yeah, well, it's just a different process, isn't it? At international level, there's like press almost every day and you put up a different player every day and switching up the coaching team is no bad thing. So I think, as you said, it's a bit more the norm in international football. Rarely would you expect to see it and at, at club football, unless, say, Martin O'Neill gets a touchline ban and it's up to Roy Keane to speak to Sky after the game. Yeah. But uh, if one of those two players is going to get a touchline ban... One of, two, one of those two managers is going to get a touchline ban. I wonder, is Martin O'Neill the more likely? It, like, it, it's, it's a huge moment as well for Roy Keane. This, mm. the, this thing that he's, he's clearly invested his stocks in Martin O'Neill at this point. And he's going down with him if, if, if this goes badly. And uh, he's going up with him if, if it goes very, very well. And that will rise his stock once again if it does go well for Martin O'Neill. So he's kind of attached himself to Martin O'Neill at this point, mm. And th- there's no getting away from that fact. Uh, ultimately, once he does come on board with Nottingham Forest. So... That is, that is one of the really interesting layers about this, is how Roy Keane uh, gets on in, in this particular role and what happens to him after this. Mm. I wonder um, how many... Uh, O'Neill clearly touches on Keane during the, over the course of the press conference. He says, oh, he's tough to handle, and that's one of the 
uh, messages that comes out. He says it in the Martin O'Neill type way that he's tough to handle, but actually, like, why wouldn't you want him on board sort of thing, that we couldn't have had the success that uh, we had, uh, obviously, at times with the Republic of Ireland when he was there. Uh, but I wonder how many offers have come in for Roy Keane over the last while. I think the delay, some of the delay that seems to be around his uh, inclusion at Nottingham Forest seems to be around a family illness that he has that's written about in one of the newspapers today, so I'm sure that's all that's really delaying it. But I wonder how many... What offers were in for Keane, you know? Like, is he looking at this as a, Jesus, I'm not, there's not much else on the table here, um, and I can't, this is sort of what's it, you know, for me at the minute. I mean, it's not a bad gig for him, because it's the same dynamic as the Ireland thing he's in. The spotlight is not directly on him, unless he's causing a little bit of stir in the background. Um, but, yeah, I wonder how many sort of other clubs were in for Roy Keane as club manager. Yeah, I do wonder if Roy Keane... Like I, I generally believe when Roy Keane went in as assistant manager to Martin O'Neill that he saw it as some sort of apprenticeship, that he went in there to learn under Martin O'Neill, mm. who at the time would have been hugely respected. I think his res- the, the respectability has taken a bit of a dent, but he's still uh, hugely respected in some quarters in the United Kingdom. So I don't think it's a, a shock appointment. But from a, a Roy Keane perspective, I do wonder if he felt that that apprenticeship wasn't as productive as it could have been with the Republic of Ireland, that really he felt, I need to actually serve an apprenticeship in club football and actually be an assistant manager to Martin O'Neill and see how he operates in a club. It's a bit more intense, it's a bit more high octane, a lot more games and a lot more player turnover. Apprenticeships probably keen, isn't he? Like it's he's obviously had the big gig at plenty of clubs and is well able for it by all accounts, but um I mean, but this is the point, though, isn't it? That he had the big gigs and he felt that he needed to learn a bit more without the pressure of being in a big gig because ultimately after Ipswich Town. Where do you go? You go to a lower rung of the championship. If that goes badly for you, you're relegated and you're a League One manager. Like That was a, a tightrope to walk at that point. And I think it did take a, a parking of some sort of ego to actually go in and say, I'm happy to be an assistant manager for a while. And I think fair play to him. The thing is now, has this assistant managership gone on a little bit too long? Well, like there is going to be a lot of uh, retrospective analysis of this decision depending on what way it goes mm. like we will be saying if they get promoted next season oh that, that was a genius move by Roy Keane to stick with Martin O'Neill if it goes the other way you're like what's he doing yeah and also like inevitably what's going to happen in six months time or a year's time is that everybody's going to be writing that you know Martin O'Neill is sort of considering his options he may step away from Nottingham Forest at some point in the next year and well you assume when that happens that Roy Keane is the next man standing and he's the one who's going to get the gig yeah, very very similar to another story I've heard yeah, so we'll see how that plays out over the next uh, little bit. Um, the that other story that caught me eye, caught my eye from Michael Clifford in the Irish Daily Mail this morning was just in relation to that Westmead story at the weekend. So they're playing uh, Dublin. It was a game I was kind of half considering heading along to. I think it's on Sunday night at um, Parnell Park, and it's the development obviously a whole bunch of young dubs and Westmead's opportunity to get some silverware on very early in the season was um, quite tempting for me. I mean. There is the risk that Westmead's absolute first team goes out and uh, gets tanked here by a bunch of kids that nobody's going to see for the rest of the year. Pretty demoralising if it happens that way, it has to be said. But you have, I think you have to go for it. Like There was Michael Clifford recounts a story of a recent Burn Cup final where a manager was leaving the uh, ground and off the record was talking to a journalist on the way out and the journalist was saying like why didn't you put your full team and like they were beaten by Dublin thirds or whatever and give them a bit of a rattle and he was like you joke with me put out my first team and get beaten by get beaten by them anyway why would I do that like it feels like such a bloody defeatist attitude to begin with doesn't it 100% given last week Mead took them to a penalty shootout so I don't see any reason why West Mead wouldn't put out their first team this mm. weekend it just makes absolutely no sense to me you want to get every crack possible at this Dublin at Dublin not, yeah. not this Dublin team know, because yeah. this is not going to be the Dublin team I do like, like I don't think we're going to see none of these kids this summer I think two or three of them may actually make may appear as subs mm. or may appear in 
the, the meaningless last Super 8 game they have or whatever it may be. Uh, so there is future talent in this Dublin team and there is outstanding footballers in this. It is, an, um, brilliant. It was a, it is a brilliant opportunity for any team like Westmead to just go up against the Blue Jersey of Dublin. And I, I think the top, two top teams in Leinster, you know I make that point that well, over the last number of years. I was going to say, is there some sort of regret that Westmead have actually not being able to not close the gap because the gap is just you can't measure that fully gap. fulfill their potential of well they, they were so so they got to what was it, two three Leinster finals in a row yeah. a couple of years ago two thousand two um, oh sorry more recently yeah, 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 yeah. like the the year of the Meads come yeah. back and then the following year yeah. so what are we talking here fifteen sixteen yeah uh, like is there some sort of regret that they didn't solidify that position and push on a little bit like there, there was a, a decent age profile in that team in certain positions that they could have perhaps got into Division 2 and become a solid Division 2 team. Definitely. And that yeah. hasn't happened. I, like, I, Aye, and some players have fallen away, so he's part of the difficulty that, that um, through injury or retirement or whatever it was, some players sort of fell off. And but I, but like, <coughs> the reason why I think that happens is it's actually such a disadvantage, this may seem like the most obvious point in the world, being in the Leinster Championship. And, like, of course... It's with, a fair point. It, it is, it is a fair <laughs> point. But that this idea, having this behemoth on your doorstep is just such a demoralising thing that if they were in any other provincial championship, yeah. they're like, OK, let's chip away at the league and let's solidify ourselves, as I say, yeah. in Division 2 and get to a level like, say, Clare have got to or that Tipperary have got to by virtue of the fact, really, that they're in a provincial championship mm. where they have hope, where they feel like beating Cork if they get that draw actually provides that bit of hope every part, year. Part of the difficulty was it was a false hope because the rest of Leinster was so shit. Like, you do, you do have the likes of Kildare obviously now getting into the Super H- 8s, which I mean, any Leinster team getting into the Super 8s beyond Dublin is a good thing. It could only be a good thing for the province, but the difficulty was it was so bad for that number of years that actually there was no great success in being the second best team in uh, Leinster and Anyway, getting hockey by Dublin one way or the other was just all pretty... I sat through a lot of those games at Crow Park uh, and they were generally quite grim. Like, There's no great pleasure to be taken from it and I'm sure that's, there's another story today about a lot of the gates being down around um, uh, the Leinster Championship games and I'm sure that's part of the reason for it. The guts of a million quid, I think, by all accounts. Right, we do have John Walters uh, upcoming very shortly. We're going to uh, speak to him about uh, various topics. So if you have any questions for John, get them into us uh, over the next few minutes. We'll put them t- uh, to him. Uh, but before that, we're going to hear from the uh, Republic of Ireland team doctor, Alan Byrne, who gave a rare appearance uh, in front of the camera last night. He joined Kevin and Nathan on the football show. Loads of really interesting <coughs> stuff. You can check out the full piece up on our YouTube channel. Here's a short story, a remarkable story, by Chen Duffy. It was a free kick, um, and the keeper, I think, came out with both legs up was, as his style. And it looked like it was hard to see from the sideline. But I remember... When I looked back in the video, Kieran Murray went onto the pitch first. And if you check, if you watch, if you count, he makes a decision at about 11 seconds to go like this to me. But I know now we're so onto the pitch. Within about the same time frame, I turn around and say, I can't tell you why I knew. Don't, Darren O'Dea, and this is no disrespect, Darren walked by. He said, Don't mind him, Doc, he's just winded. That's, I swear to God, that's as Darren might say. Because it looked Darren O'Dea just tweeted us tonight, by the way, to tell you, uh, did he? you yeah, that you're the best doc around. So <laughs> I, mean, I would say. <laughs> Sorry that, about yeah. that, Darren. I would say <laughs> that. <laughs> I would say <laughs> that, yeah. No, no, he didn't. He, he says what footballers say. It, it was a typical <laughs> thing, and, and, and to be honest with you, that was, if you're asking, looking back on that, um, because Shane nearly died, um, and without John O'Burns decision-making in the ambulance and without the matter and all of that. Jerry McEntee, who did the surgery, uh, he would have died. I mean, he, he bled three and a half litres into his abdomen. Um, one of the weirdest parts of that night was the manager had given us the night off and I was meeting my wife with um, one of the kitmen, Mick Lawler, and his wife go for dinner. I said, I can't go, I've got to go to the matter. So when 
they found where the problem was they were going to operate. And I was with Shane's dad, if I remember correctly, his uncle, his nephew, Pat Coslow, who's the head of FAI man operations, I think, at that stage, uh, myself and John O'Byrne. And we're in Fibsborough, and I'm trying to think, what we do? So this is ridiculous. We went to Eddie Rockets to have a cup of tea because I didn't know where else to go. So we're sitting there in the booth, and John O'Byrne gets a phone call after about 20-odd minutes, and he goes out, and we can see him walking up, and he comes in, and, you know, when somebody's walking, and at, as he got closer, I wasn't sure what he was going to say. He said, uh, they found everything is fine. They've stopped the bleeding. Shane is fine. And we ran out of the Eddie Rockets, jumping around like... Shane's father said to me, Alan, it's like winning the World Cup. And I said, Brian, I think Brian's... A, I said, it's Brendan. I said, it's much bigger than that. Republic of Ireland uh, team doctor Alan Byrne with the, show, uh, the lads on the show last night. You can check out the full piece up on our YouTube channel. Well worth uh, checking out there. An interesting chat with Alan Byrne. Uh, delighted to say John Walters joins us on the line en route. I think John to Burnley Training. Good morning to you. Morning, guys. You OK? Good. What does uh, Burnley Training consist for you these days? How's the injury? Uh, I'm not too bad. I'm in, the, I'm, I'm in the gym probably six days a week doing... Um, ski machine, old bike, pull-ups, uh, all that. I just started a couple of weeks doing Achilles and calf work. And I think the next step's going on the, the Alter G treadmill, which is the anti-gravity treadmill, and then uh, on the grass, hopefully, after that. All right, well, look, at we, it's funny watching the, um, I don't know if you've seen it, the Sunderland documentary that we seem to talk about almost every other day now, but uh, it gave a good insight into various players, that uh, some Irish players indeed, who had been out for long spells with injuries and the how monotonous it could be, I suppose, to a degree with having to sort of repeat that rehab in a way that, you know, it's not like going to training and hanging out with the lads every day. No, look, it's, uh, you have to get your head around it very quickly. Uh, I did I got my head around it as well as walking off the pitch and it switches you exactly what I've done. And uh, you've got to get your head. It's going to be a long slog, a long, um, a long road. And just deal with it. And, you know, I, I just mentally dealt with it. And I just and took it with the viewpoint what's to be is to be. And there's nothing you can do about it. Absolutely nothing you can do about it. So get your head around it and set yourself little challenges and just enjoy what you're doing. Um, you can't be out there training. You're watching training. You're watching lads go out and you're sort of side of it. You're not part of it really, but um, you're trying to be as much as you can. Has the fact that it's been a fairly tricky first half of the season for Burnley made it easier or harder for you as an injured player? Um, I think sometimes it's some lads are in a change room. I like to you know, speak to a few lads, especially if they're not playing and, and, and help them in a certain way and speak to them and, uh, and do what you can for them. Um, I'm passionate experience often sometimes the lads that are playing, like it'll turn around and it's not all doom and gloom and um, you know, you just gotta especially the big clubs away when you're playing those uh, if you're on a if you're on a bad run of three or four games you just gotta turn around quickly to trying to do that and that's the manager's job as well and the coach's staff and uh, you know we had a tough start to the season but we've we've hit back and we've won three on the run now which is which is very hard in the Premier League. Um hard enough to get back to back wins to get three on the run going into walk for the way um, got a good chance to get four so it's uh, good times at the moment but I think we've got, got to go on some run to get out the trouble we're in so I think we're going to be we're going to be there or thereabouts for the next, for the next at least few months and then and see what happens 
Yeah, it's definitely been an encouraging start to the calendar year and an encouraging weekend last weekend from an Irish perspective as well. I thought Jeff Hendrick should have been given that goal, but even if you don't give it to him, uh, I think he had a, a very, very good performance last week. Uh, his form seems to be picking up recently. I presume his form off the pitch and uh, his own morale is picking up as well. Oh, Jeff's always in um, good spirits, to be fair. Jeff's uh, a great man. He's always in, he's always in good spirits. He doesn't seem to get too down. Um, difficult for him, uh, especially at Burnley, because he plays in a position that is not really his position for what he's grown up playing. Uh, when he plays in behind the striker, I'd say Jeff's a natural, natural midfielder, but probably not a number a tenth of the same way behind the striker, because you're expected to get beyond the striker and make those channel runs and that's not really what Jeff's about so much you can get Jeff on the ball it's always very good he's good at linking up and, and uh, controlling up the field so sometimes he's judged on that uh, playing because he's playing week in week out and uh, he doesn't get so much of the ball that in our team so um, it's good to see him doing well and good to see him you know it wasn't given to him but it's good to see him evolve in the goals definitely and good to see him uh, wishing Robbie Brady on, uh, a happy birthday on Twitter during the week as well when he felt the FAI were leaving him out. Uh, one of the other things, John, that was um, certainly caught my interest on Twitter and uh, in terms of the Bielsa storyline that's kind of dominated a lot of the headlines of football this week, I think the best thing about it had been seeing uh, John Walters quoting Oscar Wilde and Roy Keane in the space of a couple of days uh, in response to various questions on, on the topic. Uh, morality like art means drawing a line somewhere and, of course, the famous failed prepare uh, prepare to fail line. Um, do you think that draw, line was drawn a little harshly on Marcelo Bielsa this week? Yeah, I do. I think uh, he's not broken any rule. He's not. He, he's trying to find small, small margins, and he's doing an unbelievable amount of work behind the scenes. He's shown his, his press conference, and that goes on all clubs. All the stats, you know, they are stats guys, and we watch games and football. I think that's a different level what he does, and that's just probably for maybe an instance in a game for a corner or a scenario in a game. That's a very very small percentage you go through that work. Now, we at Stoke we had a, a training ground, and the fans used to just park up at the car park in the gym and watch the training, or you could walk around the footpath um, with the loft in and watch the training through through the trees. Um, so I always saw teams could quite easily just watch a train. There's nothing wrong with it. You're a public footpath. Um, so where, where are the morals drawn, uh, I think, in a football club? Because I think the, the English media in particular jumped on it. And then you talk about the English media's morals of how they clamber to get the England team and, and print it to the detriment probably of the English team um, throughout every every tournament and every game and yet they're the ones that I call and shout them aloud and saying what he's done is wrong and cheating and then uh, the models of a football club in general where, where do you draw the line where do you start and stop do you start it when you're when you're saying something like that and he hasn't broke the rule or do you start it when you're trying to sign a player and you, you talk to a player that you're not allowed to talk to because it goes on at every club every single every single club will do it um, so where, where's, the, where's the, uh, the line drawn in terms of morals? And there's lots of other things in the game. What if, what if Frank Lampard's striker dived in the penalty area uh, last game of the season to get promoted? Won a penalty, scored the penalty, and he got promoted. Would he be shouting 
that this player's cheating because he's been promoted. I, I don't think so. So this way you draw the, the lines of football, I don't think what he's done is wrong. Yeah. I like, think uh, what he's done is very clever. Just in terms of, of the reaction and, and what we've seen written and what we've seen said in the media over the last week, do you think that there's been sort of a, a, a snobbery almost from some of the pundits in the newspapers? I think, like just reading Martin Keown yesterday, he seems particularly outraged by this, that there is some sort of British superiority complex when it comes to viewing an Argentinian manager coming into the championship and doing something like this? I don't know. Um, I don't know, possibly. I think... I said people... People don't like it when people are successful. Said that, and people like to take an agenda and why. Maybe they don't understand why, or I don't know. But possibly you could say that. Um, and it's different with, with, say, like the Frank Lampard because he's uh, been the part of the golden generation of England players and um, gets on well with the media, very well spoken, good manager as well. Um, say what's fair and what's not in football. There's another one. We probably Frank Lampard probably get players from Chelsea uh, and other clubs because it's Frank Lampard where he might not go to a Rotherham, say in the same league. Is that fair? Because he's, yeah, you know, it's it's a difficult one to to say, and that's mm-hmm. what I say. There's no point in getting uh, on your on your moral high horse and saying no, oh, this is wrong, this is that, because every football club there's things that go on that are that aren't in the rules uh, and in games there's things that you do that aren't in the rules but it's part of the game so you just get on with it and uh, actually say fair play he's come out and said it as well uh, which I thought was great but his translator came out and said it who knows what he said he could have been saying something else <laughs> his translator came out and said it so it's, I think it's, uh, it, it's it's fair play to him yeah, saw uh, Dean Saunders, one of those, to, uh, be up on his high horse during the week as well. A man who himself obviously had some questionable things to say about Brian Clough in the past, but look at there we go. Gary Breen uh, joins us on the line as well. Uh, morning to you, Gary. Is this, I presume it's this uh, sort of stuff, you'd have seen it in your day? Good morning. Listen, um, in keeping with what John said there, he's absolutely right. This talk about a moral code among managers is, is, is nonsense, really, because each manager will do everything they possibly can to get an advantage. Managers will know the team from the opposition going into weekend just by talking to an agent who's got a disgruntled player who will reveal it. He'll have one of his players who has mates with one of those in their change room and he'll reveal it and he'll work along with it. So it's very difficult to, to suddenly start talking about morality, bearing in mind just how ruthless managers can be and players as well. Of course they can and, and, and club hierarchies in terms of doing whatever they can for their own benefit. I think ultimately it's more about etiquette. And Owen, you said about Martin Keown saying about, you know, they don't do this in the Premier League. Well, you're right. I think a lot of people with the Premier League believe that they're above the rest of the world. You know, the criticism that Pep Guardiola got in his first season, people saying you can't win the Premier League playing that type of football. It's a lack of respect. It's complete nonsense. I think Bielsa, in keeping with what Johnny's just said there, an incredible job to be top of the to championship with largely a squad that he inherited. This is not um, a case of him coming in and bringing all, all these star players in the way that Wolves did in terms of coming up last year. He's he just rejuvenated that whole squad. And uh, I, I think it's very difficult. People need to be careful in terms of throwing accusations out. Just before we leave this uh, topic, Gary, one final thought for me was that if this guy hadn't been on the radar of some of the bigger clubs, 
and you've mentioned some of them there at the uh, top end of the Premier League, perhaps he most likely is now, given the week that he's had, a forceful personality, sci this scientific approach to it, a guy who can get results is surely now getting attention from some of the bigger clubs. Well, if, if those bigger clubs hadn't known about his skill set, that's, that's, um, that's a nonsense, really, because he's been admired. All these new generation of managers keep citing that he's their, their inspiration as such in terms of what they've learned under him. But also, I'd counter that by saying all the things and everyone talking about a masterclass, it's, it's, not, it's not things that people are not doing anyway. You know, people are doing a lot of this work behind the scenes. It's probably the supporters are not aware just how much detail goes into it. You have to do everything possible to make sure that you're fully prepared. Now, when I was coaching at Peterborough, one of my main remits was dealing with defensive corners. So I'd watch countless hours of the opposition in terms of their corners just to see whether or not they'd done something we hadn't seen. I'd work on a training field then to counter that, how we were potentially vulnerable. I'd work on scenarios like that. So you do it. And our coaches are doing it all the time. So... Um, as much as people say how brilliant that was to see what he had done, it, it is actually been doing quite um, commonly throughout the leagues. I want to talk a little bit about, about the United-Brighton game, obviously, the weekend, and the incredible run, John, that uh, United are on at the minute that Solskjaer is on, and he's making it very difficult, obviously, for the United bosses not to appoint him almost at this stage. And if he continues the way he's going, uh, John, they're going to nick uh, a top-four spot here. Can you see that happening? And do you expect Solskjaer uh, to get the gig in the long run? Well, I think he's done an excellent job so far, and I think it was a, it's obviously a good team anyway. I think it's just getting the confidence in the squad and rejuvenating them after, after um, Jose. So, you know, he's, he's started better than any other manager in, 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 in history. So it'd be difficult if he carried on like that, not to, but it's a case of, um, you know, especially if you've got a Champions League spot, because after the clubs were worth a lot and I'm realistically if you look at it um, Manchester United is a business now so when they make decisions it's a business business decision as well not just a football and one um, because the stock price goes up and things like that and whether they've got I'll be very very surprised if, uh, if Manchester United haven't got up and weren't speaking to someone anyway um, whether that be uh, Zinedine Zidane or I don't know who else has been mentioned, whether that's lined up and that's lined up somewhere anyway. I'm not too sure. Uh, uh, and, you know, as you say, in football clubs, there's a lot of things you don't know that what goes on. And, and being a business, um, it, would have, it, it would have, you know, calculated every decision on it. But if he carries on going the way he's going, it'll be very difficult um, to not to not at least give him a go of it. Um, I think we've got to be well in the Champions League as well. But um, saying that from the players, it's all unwell sometimes playing differently for a manager when a new manager comes in she's just trying to impress in that first month um, everyone's running that a little bit harder and trying a little bit more in training doing all the right things I've seen it at clubs down the years that little bounce effect of a new manager coming in but it's, it's the second month it's the third month you need to get those players doing the same things carrying on uh, and going forward uh, because you see it where players do it for the first month and then go back to their old habits and be a bit sloppy or be a bit so I don't know but you know, he's done, a, he's done an unbelievable job since he's gone in, so it'll be very difficult not to. Yeah, all right, John, listen, yeah, you've been great with your time this morning. Thanks a million for taking the call. Best of luck with the continuing rehab. Oh, cheers, thank you. And a uh, little mention for, for Alan Byrne you had on last night. What a guy he is. Unbelievable. Seems, seems, seems like there's so many, so many good stories coming in about him, John. There was a few players in touch last night as well. Yeah, look, at the moment I was involved in the Irish squad, uh, one of the nicest guys you'll meet, and it's 
purely in, uh, uh, just to look after uh, as a person as well. Um, he looks after me so well. He's an unbelievable guy. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Well said. Thanks, William. No Cheers, John Walters on the line there on his way to uh, to Burnley training. Just to continue on that theme, uh, Gary, the um, Brighton United game and like the job that Chris Hewton is doing, sometimes I think we don't really, I mean, he, he tends to get an understated uh, credit mm. almost at times. I mean, it, it struck me during the week that when you look at Wagner getting the sack at Huddersfield and the two of them would have come into their respective jobs with their clubs in relatively similar positions at the wrong end of the championship. The success of the job that he's doing, I mean, there's no conversation really about Brighton being anywhere near the relegation positions this season. He's uh, he's gone about his business quite quietly, uh, but really doing an unbelievable job. But he always does. He's he's a fabulous manager, and, and too often it's aimed at him that nice guys finish last as such, and it's something that people are probably saying about Solskjaer as well, that these just because they've got a nice personality, nice way about it, and they lack a bit of steel. Well, having worked on the shoot with the Irish team, I can, I can, can continue, he certainly has that. And you can't be as successful as he is being without it. He's very astute, had a great ground in terms of how long he was a coach before he took the opportunity to make that step up and be a number one. But since he did that, he hasn't looked back. And it's not only a job he done at Bryan, done a sensational job at Newcastle as well. So I'm under, it doesn't surprise me one bit. He's a, he's a brilliant manager. It's interesting, actually, that you spoke about defensive coaching there a moment ago because I often wonder, looking at this exact fixture of Manchester United against Brighton in their current status, if it is an example of excellent defensive coaching that obviously Duff and Donkey are two, uh, Duff and Donkey, <laughs> Duffy and Dunk are two excellent football players, but it seems that they've been coached to maximise their potential as well as a partnership. And I do wonder yeah. if we're seeing the early signs of very encouraging defensive coaching from a Manchester United perspective as well. Like, look at the performances of Victor Lindelof under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer so far. Now, listen, in terms of Brighton, I think what Chris does is he assesses what he's got with those players. He obviously brought in Shane Duffy to go alongside Duncan. They work hard. They, they don't give up much space behind because they're not the quickest on the turn. We've seen that. So he makes them defend deep. The fullbacks stay narrow. Midfield two in front work ever so hard. The whole team does. I think you don't play for Chris Hewton if you don't. So that's why you see how organised they are and how much work's done on the training field. And on the flip side then of Scotia, I disagree with you. I think they got ripped to pieces against Tottenham. And everyone talks about this this um, passing of the test, which he'd done brilliantly, Ollie um, Skolska, in terms of tactically so astute playing split strikers, which obviously then exposes Tottenham's fullbacks and they, and they work p- to perfection. But you can't look at that game and say, wow, that was an incredible performance from front to back because Tottenham, you know, goalkeeper, De Gea had to make 11 saves. So there's a lot of work still to be done. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of those Manchester United players the likes of Pogba, the likes of Rashford, Martial now, who are now showing that they are capable of being Manchester United players. But the flip side also is there's a lot still in that squad who are not good enough, despite contributing, as you rightly said right now, the likes of Herrera, um, Lindelof as well has improved. But I don't see them getting United back to being title winners. I did want to ask you a little bit about the, the Arsenal-Chelsea fixture this weekend because it has been a relatively interesting couple of weeks from both clubs' perspective. Obviously, uh, Arsenal not willing to pay Aaron Ramsey's wage was a little bit of a, a warning sign, I think, from a few Arsenal fans' perspective. That being said, it looks like he's going to get 300k a week at Juventus, which is absolutely outrageous. It looks like they're going to try and get most of Mesut Ozil's wages off the books as well. Whereas on the flip yeah. side, Chelsea, now they don't want to pay Gonzalo Higuain what he wants, but they're still going to give him something. They're still going to put out a, a fairly significant outlay, you'd imagine, to get him on loan if that goes through. And also the fact that they've signed Christian Pulisic a couple of weeks ago. We thought that perhaps the gap was closing between Arsenal and the rest of the big six clubs where the financial muscle wouldn't outweigh them too much. But it seems it's reverting back to the instant post-Emirates construction days. Or am I exaggerating there a small bit, Gary? 
No, no, I think you're right. And, and the worrying thing for me ultimately was uh, the recruitment in terms of the behind the scenes, in terms of like some missile attack coming in. He was a guy who has a fabulous reputation for finding these players, unearthing the next generation of stars. His name is Diamond Eye in Germany. But now he's being caught by Bayern Munich, that something's not quite right there, that he's not settled, he's going to look to leave. And, and, and the massive concern is that if Arsenal can't compete, then why are they allowing millions and millions to go out of the building? They've seen, and it's not just Ramsey, it's not just him going. We've seen it with the fact the likes of Ozil was allowed to drop his contract down to a year to go and then was able to um, re- renegotiate an incredible deal. Sanchez then went off. But we've seen it with Oxlade Chamberlain, we've seen it with Walcott. And this is what frustrates me so much is that Arsenal should know better, bearing in mind that they were the architects of what I, I, I still believe is the most sensational Premier League transfer of all time in terms of Sol Campbell going on a free transfer from Tottenham to Arsenal. So the lesson should have been learned. And for them now, millions to go out of the building like that is a, is a real poor indication of what Gazidez has done. And then obviously trying to replace Wenger, I think it's been a, a brilliant acquisition in terms of getting Emery, but then Gazidez then leaves for AC Milan. And you just think he's just literally left Arsenal high and dry. And this is the massive concern is that financially now they can't compete. They're talking about just getting loans in. There's suggestions that Suarez will come in from Barcelona. I know he's worked with Emery before, so that um, bodes well as such. But there's no doubt it's all well and good getting these offensive plays, but it's defensive reinforcements that Arsenal need. And the only thing I can counter it by saying is that hopefully they're not prepared to waste money, which can often happen in January, that they're stockpiling their money to, to make a real good go of it in the summer transfer window. But certainly it, it, there's a financial gulf again with Arsenal not being able to compete with the top teams, despite, as all those Arsenal fans were told, when they get to the Emirates, they'll be one of the leaders there again. Yeah, given the uh, points gap between them as well, it's absolutely essential that Arsenal get uh, the win at the weekend. Gary, pleasure as always. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. In that uh, battle for fourth of, uh, of course, the uh, live game and off the ball this Sunday, Huddersfield against Manchester City. Stephen Doyle and Kevin Caban going to be on commentary duty for that. And also there's a uh, live commentary of the Rugby Wasps against uh, Leinster on uh, Sunday, Conor, uh, Sunday. Conor Mars, Brendan Mackin and Jake Heenan going to be in the commentary box for that one. So that's uh, what's coming up and off the ball over the weekend. Your Arsenal going to get it done? On? Uh, probably Unlikely. not. Probably not. Like, it is... Uh, the, the sort of fixture Arsenal would win, isn't it? That's the, the yeah, well, that's true. All, all the cliches of the peak Arsenal banter era are coming back. They're coming home to roost over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we've got our Arsenal back uh, is now being taken on to its actual <laughs> yeah. uh, end uh, conclusion, mm-hmm. which is you know Arsenal of three, four years ago was fine. Must be back. horrific being an Arsenal fan because you thought that you did have your Arsenal back and that Emery was the second coming of Wenger the first. And now you're still like... <laughs> well, I, ha- I have my doubts that it's actually uh, Unai Emery's fault. Right. To this extent. Deeper problems I mean, like, like as he said, Gazidis just yeah. jumped ship after hiring him. Something is not right there. Alrighty, Darren Cleary is on the way to bring us up to speed with everything that's happening in the world of live sport this morning. And uh, there is plenty of live sport to update you on, so that's uh, coming your way. Alan Quinlan as well will be with us to preview the weekend's uh, rugby. Rory O'Connor's in studio shortly to uh, give us his insight on the uh, scoop, spying scoop of the decade. Uh, as I've uh, dubbed it this morning uh, aptly. But before we get to uh, one of the greatest yarns in Irish sports buying history, here's Liam Lawrence uh, telling tales of Tony Pulis buying at the Keith Andrews show yesterday. Before you go, I just want to ask you about the um, the scandal at Leeds and Mr Bielsa. <laughs> <laughs> what were your thoughts on that? Hey, to be fair to him, it's a breath of fresh air that he's just come out so openly and honest and said, yeah, I did it, so what? <laughs> you know, but it's obviously upset. Lampard and a, and a few other people, but for, it's been going on for years. You know yourself. Other managers know the other team. Sometimes on a Friday, players speak to their mates and 
things get out and get leaked, but to send someone to the training ground and you know, hide in the trees, it's a new one for me. That. I don't think Tony Pulis even did that, did he? We, we, we once had someone trying to watch us at um, an away game. We, we were, I think it was a Tuesday, and we'd gone on a Tuesday morning out onto a pitch at a hotel to do some shape, and there was some people watching. So a few of stopped the session, sent two of the coaches over, and, the, and these people wouldn't leave. So he storms over and sort of gives them a bit of stick and then they soon laugh like. <laughs> yeah, somebody got nabbed while spying in Stoke City and had Tony Pulis to do it. Not a set of circumstances I'd like to be in the middle of. Uh, Rory O'Connor, good morning to you. Morning, Adrian. You were not quite, but almost in that scenario. Will you set the scene for us? It's 2011, I think it's January, February. January, yeah, January 2011. I, um, all the buzz and the GA and sporting world was around these Dublin early morning train sessions that uh, Pat Kilroy put on. Dublin obviously... 16 years since they won in All-Ireland. Very mm. different picture than, than now. And Been to the semi-finals the year Yeah, beaten by Cork. And, um, yeah, this was the big change that they put in and every, like, everyone was talking about it. And I, from what I recall, someone had gone down, a, a snapper, a photographer had gone down and taken pictures. So the pictures, they didn't have pictures of mm. the training. Um, but they needed some, some uh, copy to go with it. And someone had, I can't remember who it was, had the bright idea, why don't we send someone down and just watch? Because they trained on Alfie Byrne Road. I don't think they're, they're there anymore. Which is open, like you can anyone who drives through Clontarf can see Alfieburn Road. The, 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 it's, it's a wide open space. So uh, I was the newest man in, and probably the least well known of anyone on the staff, and probably the most naive and gullible to, to be taught. So, and also my parents lived not too far away, so they had the idea of why don't we send the new guy. So what happens? Uh, the editor down. calls you in and is like, "Let's have an idea." Yeah, yeah. and I, I probably wasn't as aware of the access. Stuff that we kind of all anyone that goes to press conferences and stuff in journalism now knows that like you know, these are things there, there are parameters you're supposed to mm. go. I was just I know, why not? So I was uh, the idea was yeah go down and just have a look and and uh, and report on what what they do because it was like you know are they flogging them? Is just you know just they had this yeah. mystique I think and the idea was to break the mystique and the fact that they had the you know the it, you know January's a quiet time for GA anyway we had the pictures mm. the pictures were good. And um, why not? So, um, so do you go down beforehand to do a bit of a recce no, and see here's no, where I'm going to perch that, myself? Here's the tree I'm going to climb. No, no wire cutters, no binoculars, <laughs> no uh, no recce. Just um, I just <laughs> I uh, I got up and I I used the cover of Dog Walker. So I got my parents' dog. Uh, I stayed in my parents' house. And I got up at I must be in half five because they're about twenty five minute walk to, to, down to it. Uh, woke up Guinness, the, do- the now depar- sadly departed dog, and um, put on as many clothes as I could because it was absolutely freezing. And um, I had, and I, I broke my glasses over Christmas, and I was wearing contacts, so I put in my contacts as well. And wandered down, halfway down, it was so cold. I don't know if you ever, if you guys have contact lenses, but I had daily disposables. They dried out. One of them dried out and fell out. Right. So I was like, oh, I'm down to one now. And I got down, and as I walked into the Elfburn Road, I st- like obviously one of the players or management turned in as well. So I don't know. So I kind of s- spotted like a copse of trees on the left and headed for them. Uh, and the, my other contact fell out, and I caught it and put it back in. And if I hadn't caught it, right, the story, uh, never I would, would the story would never have appeared. So, we made a beeline for these trees, and uh, Guinness, myself and Guinness, and uh, took out my notepad and. Was Guinness a quiet training. dog, or was he? What he was of? quiet that morning. It was probably right. too early for him. But yeah, no, that was one of my the, my my uh, risks of exposure was <laughs> you know, that he, while he was my cover, he might have blown my cover at the same time. Yeah. 
but uh, no, he managed to stay quiet. I think it was so too early for him as well. A, no, I presume because it's the, the people. I don't know. If, a lot of people will be familiar with the article from seven or eight years ago, and we'll tweet it out as well, Tommy, as well. I think just give people a bit of a flavour if they haven't seen it. But it's there's a lot of detail in it in terms of this five minute segment, and here's what happens ten minutes later. So you you've got your notepad out presumably, and you. Well, I had a thousand words to fill, and um, they weren't doing that much. So it was kind of it was. I think what was striking was the mundanity of it. Right. It was just like any training session. Not that we get to see much training, but like any training session that anyone will be involved in. Like I, again, there was a mystique about it, and you're going down and wondering, you know, what are they doing? Are they doing, you know, like flogging lads with laps, or you know, it was just a training session. And like Gilroy explained it later as being just to fit into people's days, like get it get it done, and then they have their evenings back. And I think they might have been doubling it up at that time of year, mm. but it was. Partly commitment, but it was also partly fitting in around. It was a quiet. It's an easier time to get to Clontarf than six o'clock in the evening. Um, and it's like I think the, one of the most striking things I think Malachy Clerkin picked it up in his in his book later that year after they'd gone on and won the All Ireland was that uh, Cluxton was the first player onto the pitch. Mm. You know, just like a little thing. And it, like, sure, the next day he might have been the last player on the pitch, but that day he was From first what we on. believe, it's, yeah, it's and it, first man. And that was before um, uh, John Leonard's book around like that. So he was. You know, he was on setting the standard. Mickey Whelan, who, who was in his, it was, I presume, he's still in the seventies, I think. You know, was 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 out there at six, ten to six, putting out cones. Mm. You know, Gilroy was, but it was it was just quiet. It was hard working. It, but it was just drills. It was, you know, there was nothing, nothing remarkable about it. In fact, except for the fact that it was six in the morning and it was dark and it was cold mm. and they were just, uh, they they just got on with it. You know, did you get an adrenaline rush from hiding in the bushes watching the dogs? <laughs> <laughs> it was more, yeah, you're, you're just afraid of getting caught. Like you know, you're afraid of making a noise, even though like they're all shouting at each other. You know, after the, once it started, I think I remember it was quite quiet at the start, as it would be. Anyone who goes to the gym at seven in the morning or like that, any of those classes Much that you said. do, no, it's all like you leave feeling great. But you, you first appear absolutely wrecked. You know, yeah. it, 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 so it was quiet at the start, but once they got going, it was normal. So there's no, they weren't, they didn't, and it, like it was dark, so like they were under floodlights. It was no real, but you, you got that fear of being caught. So yeah, you probably, I probably did. I, were you hidden from view? Because they, they couldn't see you, obviously. I was in amongst trees. I, like, I don't know what they could say. I don't think so. I, yeah, I, I, I think they, I think I was spotted going in, but they just thought I. Were was... Were you worried uh, that somebody else out walking the dog or out for a general walk would see this guy <laughs> sort of crouched in? Kind the of, trees. but it's kind of off the like it's it's just off a main road, and it's, right. I don't think you would take your. Dog, and it was like no one else up. Like, yeah. I have a dog now. People don't get up and walk their dogs that hour. Um, but it was, uh, <laughs> like, it was genuinely yeah. so cold. So. Yeah, like I mean, once I got in under the trees, the dog could have done me, but the dog was grand. The dog was quite happy just to, like he, he wasn't used to being walked at that early in the morning either. So, um, and like so, so they there was no you sort of get in and out undercover, and at no point where you sort of rumbled or there was no interaction. You'd went about your business after. Yeah, yeah, no, like I, they all just headed for the exit. I don't yeah. like I, I got the impression they didn't didn't use the showers right in there. They just got back in their yeah. cars and headed off, and I, and the exit wasn't where I was. So. Right. No, I had no interaction with them. Like the only time I could have got spotted was when I walked in that time. The, foot, the cars came in behind me, and apparently, um, Pat Gilroy did may have been in one of those cars and warned the, the squad that there's a couple, so, there's some dodgy fellas right. down there. So watch the wallet. Conor McKeown tweeted that yesterday when someone, I think Dennis Hurley, found the article and put it up. Yeah. So uh, we found out about that later on, like at, at the end of the season. I, I'm not sure if the end ever got a phone call. I wouldn't been on their radar at all. I was quite new oh, to the you, game. So. Had you been covering any dubs after that? Had you? I any did a couple of press conferences. And you know, did, would he have known? Nah, there, I was right. sitting at the back. I was, like I would have been. I would have been covering all sports. I wasn't one of the main guys doing GAA, and um, I don't think they knew who I was. So I think, like, if I think if it had been, it's probably one of the reasons I was chosen. If it had been one of the lads, they knew it might have had consequences. But like, 
I would, probably would have been in a League of Ireland game that Friday and a you know, bit of AIL on the Saturday. That's kind of what I was doing at the time. So when you saw uh, a spy from Leeds United showing up the Derby County training ground, were you like, fair play? I, I, I respect game, respects game right here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I don't think it's that unusual. I think it's unusual that they get caught. But I think across all sports, there's, should we have the fellow up the tree down in, in Kerry that yeah. they've done you all that a, a couple of years ago? Allegedly, is, now gone. Is, that allegedly? is it? Uh, well, moved. This is well, that's, that's terribly sad. The act of vandalism against nature, isn't it? Like, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I mean, like Ireland have a triple reinforced uh, green mesh around their training sessions in Carton House. There's mm-hmm. got to be a reason for that. You know, they're, they're obviously afraid that someone's watching them. Um, it must be, I mean, it can't be difficult with all the modern technology that exists. If you wanted to, I mean, I can't imagine a green fence would, if I wanted to see what was going on, I'm sure I'd be able to find a way. I'm sure Eddie Jones has a drone that he can just fly sh- over Carton A drone House. might be a little... Unsubtle, like you can, small you can, you yeah. Yeah. Oh, what's this? Uh... Um, you know, you've heard, I've heard story, stuff about like you know coaches getting planes diverted so they don't fly over stadiums for captain to run and stuff like that. Like coaches are ultra oh. paranoid. I, I I'd say this Bielsa thing has just sent a, a rocket through all the English coaches without saying you know like they're doubling up on their security and stuff. And I'm sure it's the same in all sports because mm. this stuff does happen. There's obviously for all that Bielsa said, there obviously is some sort of competitive advantage in doing it. You know, it, 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 it's it's. You know, like you know, someone like me, I was just watching. I was just watching and recounting. I didn't really glean anything from it from a tactical point of view. But I'm sure if, if someone who knew a bit more about Gaelic football was, they might have picked up something. You know. Just the one last thing is uh, Henry Winter was uh, kind of got a bit of criticism this week for a bit of a double standard, criticising the uh, kind of intelligence that they were trying to seek from a Leeds United perspective, despite the fact that he tried to get England teams from uh, in previous World Cups to publish for his newspaper. Have you heard any uh, other rugby hacks that have gone to that length to actually do a Henry Winter on, on the Irish rugby team? No, I don't think so. There's the, like you get to the there's the odd open training session that you get to watch, but um, I'm not aware of it. Um, but like I, when it's an open training session, or when you're in somewhere where the you can see training, you'll obviously have a look, or you'll watch the the ten fifteen minutes that you can, and maybe dwell for a little while longer as much as you can. But um, at this stage, I think they used to watch it all the time and used to clean stuff off it. But unfortunately, in the modern era, it's not not welcome. And I'd say. I say Dublin might have ramped up their security as well. Uh, I think Peter Sweeney was invited. Uh, he was in the start at the time, invited back the next year to try. I think to, to ward off the, oh, the, really? the unwelcome ones. Yeah, it was kind of a you know, <laughs> bring one in you know, and sort yeah, of do exactly. a false, false session. Yeah, they probably, yeah. yeah, exactly. So because I mean, Joe, when, whenever sorry, in rugby, the whenever they have the open sessions, they don't do anything. No, like, same uh, in fo- same at the international football team. They just come in and they do a bit of a warm up, and then yeah. once the serious stuff starts, they get. The but he, but they do these open sessions. They're doing one Belfast, one in the Viva this 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 month. But the, they don't do any of their team shape yeah, stuff. They yeah, just yeah. do. They, it's a full session and it's quite committed it's against the twenties and stuff. But he's, even then, he's, he knows. You've ruined it for all of us, Rory. Is what you're saying? I have, yeah, no, <laughs> and I apologise to everyone. You're going to come back to us in a few minutes, I think, to chat a little bit rugby. Why not? Uh, and John Allen Quinlan. That's uh, coming up very shortly. And Darren Cleary on the way as well to bring us up to speed with all the live sport. But before all of that, uh, the Keith Andrews show went out yesterday, as it always does, of a Thursday afternoon. Joe was alongside Keith. And they discussed, of course, Martin O'Neill's appointment at Nottingham Forest. It's great. I mean, the money... Um, so O'Neill is at the opposite end of the spectrum to Bielsa in terms of preparation. It struck me that Ireland played their very best football at Euro 2016 mm. when the players were together every day. They were effectively like a club. They were probably developing patterns of play and partnerships on the pitch just in training, just through regularity. So mm. it strikes me O'Neill... Is, a, is much better su- O'Neill's style is much better suited to club, club. than international so you, know, could, you could go in there and oversee things and mm. they won't look as disjointed because they're together every day well his last club job was, was Sunderland obviously and that's 
Yeah. Be the blot on his copybook in terms well, of club well management. There. I agree, I agree. Before that, in fairness, <coughs> before, now, this club. This, this issue in that football has changed quite a lot in the last 10 years mm. and the preparations changed. But before Sunderland, his record is fairly phenomenal. Yeah. It really is. Mm. So it's a real chance for him to rehabilitate his career in our eyes almost, mm. you know? Because it was funny, I was reading Daniel, Ta- Daniel Taylor's piece in the, um, the Guardian before he got the job announced. And, you know, he was making the point that, look, he got the Ireland job, he took them to the um, knockout stages of Euro 2016, eliminated by France. He also took them to the qualifying playoffs for the last World Cup at the expense of the Welsh side who had reached the Euro 2016 semi finals. Um, he's faced criticism from the Irish media about his style of play, whereas Forrest have taken the alternative view that he inherited the least talented group of players the country has produced for many years and, in fact, overachieved. They went to a major tournament, they beat Italy, and they beat Germany, the world champions, in the process. Mm. That is a very easy narrative to sell to the Nottingham Forest hierarchy, who won't have t- heard the nitty-gritty of our issues no, with they the Ireland. They probably won't you know. care. They won't care that much. But, but that is how he's perceived uh, across the water. And it's... A, it's it's a justifiable argument as well. In his case. It totally is. Yeah. Um, so I'd be very interested to see how he does day-to-day at club level where maybe the lack of preparation isn't as damaging as when a team just comes together every mm. two or three months. Full show up on youtube.com forward slash off the ball or up on uh, off the ball.com as well. A few people pointing out that the Apparent Cup final is not on Sunday night, it's on tonight, so a bit of a wasted trip for me if I was to head out there on Sunday. Uh, it just means that Westmead are going to have the uh, money in the bag. Early doors. Darren Cleary is with us. Good morning to you, Darren. Morning, Adrian. We'll start with the live sport this morning, and Shane Larry took a one shot lead into the third round of the Abu Dhabi Championship. A second round of 70 left the Offley Man on 12 under par. Louis Westhazen and Richard Sterney a shot off the pace. Larry, speaking before he took off this morning, delighted to be leading after a start to his second round? I struggled at the start. I hit some really ropey shots. Um, didn't feel too comfortable, but I made a great up and down in the third hole for bogey, and uh, I think that kind of kick-started me. I hit, you know, pretty much was hitting the ball decent after that for the rest of the day. I gave myself a lot of chances. I didn't convert as many as I would have liked, but, um, you know, I'm pretty happy to shoot 70 and, and be, you know, in the lead going into the weekend is, is always nice. My arm play has been pretty good, and I've been playing the power three as well, so I... Uh, now, I fancied that one on on twelve, and um, yeah, I'm you know I'm pretty happy where my game's at, and I'm looking forward to the weekend. We're playing a huge event here, first one of the year, and there's not another Rolex event for a while, so it'd be nice to get off to a good start and um, you know get some points on the race to the board, and and then you know kick on from there. Now Shane Larry's out already this morning. He's just parred the first hole, ten under now. Lee Westwood motoring well, four under. He's finished his round, so at eighteen, uh, ten under at the moment. Lee Westwood joining the top. Then there's a chasing pack of Ian Poulter on nine under, uh, Scott Jamieson and Tom Lewis. Meanwhile, stateside, Phil Mickelson started his 2019 campaign in style with the lowest round of his golfing career. The American just missed out on shooting a round of 59 at the Desert Classic, but the five-time major winner was happy to settle for a career-low 60 on Thursday. Big Phil is on 12 under Waterford native Seamus Power, carded an opening round of 74 at that tournament. While in the tennis, Maria Sharapova has dumped the defending champion Caroline Wozniacki out of the Australian Open. The Russian, who was banned for two years for doping back in 2016, recorded a 6-4-4-6-6-3 victory to reach the fourth round. For Sharapova, this will be the fourth time she's reached the last 16 and a major since her return from a ban, but she's yet to go beyond the quarterfinals. Roger Federer eased into the fourth round of the tournament with a straight-sets victory over Taylor Fritz. Unseeded Czech Thomas Burdick also threw as he continues to rediscover his form. 
Soccer next, and Martin O'Neill hopes Roy Keane will join him at Nottingham Forest. O'Neill has become the 13th permanent Forest manager in eight seasons. He's aiming to guide the Trouble Club back to the Premier League. The former Republic of Ireland boss takes charge for the first game tomorrow. It's at home to Bristol City, and the new Forest manager says Keane has a number of matters to consider, including the fact his father is ill at the moment. Well, I would dearly like him to join us, and um, I, um, again, since this has happened very, very quickly... Um, he has a number of things to uh, to uh, sort out himself. I think that um, we've had some discussions here. I would genuinely like him to do so. I'd like him to join if that's the case. There's a spot open for him, and uh, and I'm hoping that 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 may happen. It may not. Uh, he has a number of things. Obviously, he has to consider himself, uh, both personally and professionally. And um, but he will keep me informed. But I would uh, I would dearly like him to uh, join up. Uh, he was a great asset to me as the uh, when I was the manager and assistant manager of Republic uh, of, of Ireland, with some really great days. Uh, tough to handle, there's no doubt at all about it, you know. But um, but uh, but you know that with him, and uh, and that's probably what makes him pretty special. Now, Jose Mourinho has taken aim at a younger generation of managers claiming they're all style and no substance. Mourinho has resurfaced following a sacking on BN Sports and the axed one appears to have taken a swipe at the Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp and Tottenham's Mauricio Pochettino. He was speaking generally about managers who receive pundits praise for their style but lack any trophies. It's very easy to play well and not win. It's very easy to be behind a certain idea of a certain football without results. And um, the people that wins, and the people that wins consistently, because you can win isolated and then disappear, the people that win consistently has obviously a different idea, um, a different idea um, about that. If you speak about uh, uh, Guardiola, about Ancelotti, about the ones uh, where obviously I belong, that have a career of victories for long, long periods. Where are the young ones with um, a real impact in terms of results? Where are they? He could just as easily be talking about uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It strikes me there that the short-term success, a run of results, that isn't necessarily what Jose Mourinho would describe as success. So, I mean, people are interpreting as a pop at uh, club, and as well it may be, but uh, it might catch Solskjaer in his net as well. Yeah, it seemed to be a pretty strange setup because it's just Mourinho. It didn't seem like there was anyone asking him questions. Mm. All the the seeded out video from B in Sports. It was almost like his a uh, golden cleric speech, where he's just having vague pops at everyone without being uh, too thought. specific or being asked any questions by anyone. Uh, a strange enough interview. But Peter Romani is Munster's main injury concern as they prepare to name their team for tomorrow's Champions Cup clash with Exeter at Thomond Park. Romani suffered a rib injury during last week's win in Gloucester, and the Munster captain still rated as fifty fifty at best to keep his place in the back row. It's simple enough, Permian. Mutation-wise, a win or a draw enough against Exeter for Munster to top their pool. Leinster could recall Sean O'Brien, Robbie Henshaw and Devon Turner for their game against Wasps in Coventry on Sunday in the Champions Cup. All three trained fully this week. Johnny Sexton remains out of action with that knee injury suffered against Munster over Christmas. Leinster know a win over Wasps will qualify them for the quarterfinals, but a home tie is only guaranteed should they add a bonus point. While Warren Gatlin says he's held informal conversations over coaching the British and Irish Lions again in 2021, the New Zealander led them on their last two tours. They drew the series in New Zealand in 2017. In 2013, they recorded a win over Australia. Gatlin will leave his role as the Wales head coach after nearly 12 years in charge following the World Cup in Japan.
And finally, it's official. Richard Kyo is bigger than Brexit. He was the hero for Derby County earlier this week. They advanced to the next stage of the FA Cup with a penalty shootout victory over Southampton. More people watched the Ireland defender score the winning spot kick than Theresa May addressed the nation after the Brexit vote uh, on TV. With extra time in the FA Cup clash, coverage of the British Prime Minister's speech was bumped from BBC One to BBC Two. Gary Lineker revealed viewership figures for the Cup replay peaked at 4.6 million during the penalty shootout. Two million more than watched May deliver the speech on BBC Two. Could have watched both. You could have watched both. If they start calling him Keo instead of Keo, then Brexit is officially off the table. Uh, Darren, thanks a million. Cheers, for that, uh, For the minute, have a good weekend. Uh, Alan Quinlan standing by, Rory O'Connor standing by. We're going to get stuck into the rugby in just a few minutes. But before all of that, a great story uh, from our series, The Leader's Questions with Stuart Lancaster, all of which is available up by uh, the full series, up available up on youtube.com forward slash off the ball. Performance coach Bill Bezik on the latest episode here, speaking about Steve McLaren's first training session as a coach at Manchester United in early 1999. Well, a, a story I can share with you, and I, I, I think my friend Steve McLaren wouldn't mind. Um, I've heard him talk about this publicly. But he came from Derby County to Manchester United in the space of three days. Um, his life was turned upside down. He was the assistant manager of Manchester United. So for his first day's training, he decided that he would take a fun approach and get to know them and, 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 and make it a little bit more social. So he did team relays and team competitions to try and bed himself in. And partway through this, Roy, who'd lost a, a competition and was made to do press-ups, walked off the field. He did say something, but I'm not going to repeat it, yeah. <laughs> um, he walked off the field and, and went home. And when I got back from Derby County that evening, Steve was on the phone to me and explained to me he was really devastated. His captain had walked off the field in the first day of training. And I said, you've got to ring Roy. And that was like asking somebody to catch a hand grenade. Uh, oh, I said, you've got to ring Roy. One principle of coaching is never let today's problem roll into tomorrow. It gets worse. Deal with it now. He rang Roy, and two hours later he rang me and said, I've just had a master class in coaching. The only thing that Roy is interested in is hard work and challenge because that's what prepares him to go out in front of 75,000 people and television cameras on a Saturday. If he's not worked hard during the week, he doesn't feel ready for the performance on a Saturday. And I'd taken one of those training sessions that he needs so badly and abused it by doing things that weren't relevant to the game. That was Roy. He was very honest, very tough-minded, but actually very intelligent and perceptive about what top players needed. Bill Bezik there in conversation with uh, Stuart Lancaster during the week. As I said, you can check out that full piece up on our YouTube channel. It's nearly nine o'clock. Rory's back with us, as you can see. And Alan Quinlan, good morning to you. Morning, Adrian. That um, piece there, I don't know how much of you heard, but uh, Bill Bezik, who's a performance coach, talking to Stuart Lancaster and Ger about um, Stephen McLaren, who he would have worked with, and his first session as a coach at Manchester United, and to try and synopsize this as brief as I can. Um, he goes in, holds a session, bit of a sort of personalised, bit of fun, get to know each other. Keen storms off after a while, out of the dressing, uh, uh, the training area, goes home. McLaren rings him later in the day and Keen is like, you ruined that session for me. I need it to 
perform my best at the weekend and you just trampled all over it and uh, as you heard Bataran takes it all very personally and you know apologizes and all that stuff like there's another side to it that actually maybe for the entirety of the rest of the squad that fun thing of getting to know each other and something different to training totally worked it's a, it's a vital part of uh, of um high performance that you have a break have some fun sometime look i'm not sure what match it was that week and where roy was at uh, but that's we we know from his own him speaking about it himself that that's the way he wanted to be every mm. week and that's what made him tick that kind of desire and drive and motivation. Uh, in rugby, I'd often compare Paul to Roy Keane, just the detail and the energy right. and the, the the you know pushing each other in training and trying to get better all the time. But there was a great sense of fun in Paul off the field as well. Now, I don't know, I'm not saying that Roy Keane isn't a good crack off the field because I've met him personally a few times and he likes the rugby and he met us in, in, in New Zealand in 2008 on tour there and he was great crack. Right. We had went out for dinner with him, about five or six of us, and uh, he invited us out and um, he was in at Munster a few times and he was always great crack, great man for a few stories and stuff. So, But it's kind of like switching on to that psycho mode on the training pitch where I can relate to myself where I was so kind of fired up and in a different zone as a player and, and more relaxed off the field and laid back and calmer. Not completely, like, but, you know, a different... And the sports persons, people are different when they go across that line and his line was when you go out onto the training pitch, not just the matches, but Roy Keane's was on the training pitch. So... But I've even been with Munster for that period of time where we were trying to grow stuff and there was all different characters coming in and out and we were trying to get better year after year and there was a real ambition and that was being driven by the players. At times we just downed tools and went for a few points or went away, go-karting, paintball shooting, whatever the case may be. And, you know, so I think I can understand what McLaren was trying to do, yeah. but I can also understand that's what made Keane. It's it's, it, and I think, by all accounts, he was definitely a man for all of those things you've spoken about. But also, the I just don't know that he was acutely aware of he was acutely aware of what he needed. I'm just not sure, as the club captain, he was acutely aware necessarily of what everybody else. That's required. the key. I think um, you know. I think if you give him his time back, he, hindsight's a great thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, experience is good and bad. You can change some things and maybe relax. So he probably put a lot of pressure on himself that this is what he needed. And <coughs> sometimes when you're in that zone, you think it's what everyone else needed. I saw so many different characters over the years in dressing rooms. Some guys who needed to bang their head off a wall to get up for a game. Other guys who were just listening to music. Guys who'd walk around the pitch to have their routine. Some guys are laughing and joking. And that's the part that used to annoy some, some of some players why is he laughing? Why is he chatting? Is he not focused? But that's everybody's different in the way they deal with the the show. Mm. The show is when the curtain opens, when you go out onto the field and the ball is kicked off in whatever sport, and in rugby or soccer or whatever. And uh, different people deal with that. So I think that's why sport, uh, sports science nowadays is is trying to edge is and has gone to a different level about. Um, preparing people and tr- and one word you hear a lot is trying to be relaxed because that's where you can play the game in the dressing room or you can't play it afterwards it's out on the field and people handle that in different ways so there's loads of different characters and I would have seen so many different over the years like I say some guys chatting having a laugh and you think are they not up for the game but they are actually up for it but that's their Still way of kind of staying calm so I think Roy was by his own admission was this person who was just had that game face on all the time I, I'm a Liverpool fan, but I, I loved watching Keane. 
and I, I just think of that United coming down the tunnel against Arsenal and the face looking across at Vieira. See you out there. That's that's you know, but that's what made him great as well. Do you know what I mean? But um, maybe he didn't have the balance of, with yeah. that all the time, just for his own sanity, really, and his own calmness. But hey, he has had, he's had some career, to be fair. It was, he was incredible at United. We had uh, James Bond in earlier on telling us about his uh, stint spying in the Dublin footballers. Are there any good stories of either being spied on or spying on other teams? No, I think we, we, um, we have a good story. Uh, Pat Garrity, Lord to Mercy, and him was... Um, Former Munster press officer. Yeah, and, and Rory, probably, you would have probably got to know Pat and... and, and in Pat's latter years, and you were starting out, um, Pat was so paranoid about anyone watching training um, that he'd be going around the hill, the ball and UL, uh, looking out over the pitch, checking the ditch, see was there anyone in there. And uh, he was brilliant. And we used to get a kick out of it. And we would actually egg, egg, egg Pat on to go, oh, Pat, there's someone over there watching <laughs> training. And like, there'd be two students having a chat, like, and yeah. Pat would go over it's and har- open there, harass him. Yeah, you know what I mean? So, like, when you're in a wide open space... But France was really good because we were, we were, I think we were in Stade Francais, um, I think it was 2004 or five, and um, there was someone up in the stand and Pat went up and had a right go off him. And uh, there was someone, doing, it was someone doing maintenance in the, on, on, in the stadium or cleaning or something. And, um, you know, so it was brilliant. Uh, he was always kind of, but I, I'd say we were spied on loads of times in France because you've no idea, you're kind of doing a captain's run in the stadium and, it's so easy to do it. Or would you be going? You wouldn't be going full board though. At you the see, this is the thing. Um, <coughs> you can have someone look, but you don't. The tactics and uh, and you know as a journalist, Rory, going to the captain's run on a Friday now is kind of pointless. Yeah. You don't see anything. You, it's good for player. If I'm doing commentary, player ident- identifying players and the opposition and body language, and you get a sense of the mood in the camp. You chat to a few people, but as regards going seeing any sort of tactics on a Friday. You don't see him. And that's why I think, look, look, it's Joe Schmidt's kind of squads since he took over. It's it's closed shop during the week. And and I think it's right for the players. Mm. It's not right for the journalists uh, in a sense that they'd love to have more access and see more. But that's just the way of the world now. I think when you're doing those kind of tactics and it's in the intricate kind of tactical approach in all sports. um, So... I'd say we were spied on loads of times. And in those earlier days, I'd say we confuse more the spies than, uh, than actually give them any information by probably training useless or making loads of mistakes or, or messing up some moves that we were trying to run. But it's, uh, it's an interesting one. But the rugby one then, um, the one in um, New Zealand when they went to Australia when there was uh, right, yeah. sort of a device found in the... It's the only rugby really one I've heard from... Other than them actually letting out their line-out calls before the 2015 final... In Australia, the the coach accidentally they left him up on a board or something. Left him up it? on a board, and the line of calls were revealed <coughs> before before the World Cup final. Yeah, that's that's a danger because um, that is one area that um, if I was, you have to be very careful with the lineups because there's a certain kind of template that you'd use for each game, tailored to the opposition. So if you're actually practicing the ones you're going to use, and somebody's like if I saw a team doing a set of lineups now before a game, and these are the ones they're going to use. I could easily say, look, defend this way, do it this way. They're they're throwing a lot to the tail, and they do this sort of movement, and you mm. could actually mess up some of those lineouts. And um, so, it's a lineouts are a dodgy one, right for sure. One of the other things that we wanted to touch on before we get into the rugby this weekend was um, 
Eddie Jones had his press conference yesterday, and uh, my read on it is there's some awful mad stuff coming out of it. Uh, left field thinking could be the key to England's World Cup success was one of the headlines that I read here. Um, I mean, it struck me there's maybe not much else working for them, but uh, Eddie Jones was talking about, on the one hand, Jack Knoll, who's a back coming in to play in the forwards as an open side flanker, I think he's uh, suggesting. And then on another hand, he's talking about starting nine forwards. So he's talking about one hand playing eight backs, and another hand playing uh, nine forwards. Rugby World Cup here. Is he panicking, Quinny? Is this? Is he? Is he cracking? I'm just here? throwing out, um, throwing out a bit of um, some information there to kind of confuse people or is just uh, play, playing mind games. Really, he's not going to play Jack Noel as, as a number seven. Not a chance. It's hard to know when you're not in the room, but I got a transcript of that that yesterday. I just like I almost binned that whole section. I was like, that is just. Goff. There's no way he's playing Jack Noel at seven and Joe Cocker to sing a in the second row like, and he starts talking about the future of the game and all that sort of stuff I think he was just filling time for time you know I mean mm. it's just I'm not sure what like Ed, Eddie Jones walks into those rooms with a, with a strategy of what he's going to say and what he's going to do and he was very complimentary about Ireland yesterday but didn't really want to get into Ireland and, and the game he'll do that next week or you know, he'll probably do that at the launch when there's a couple of Irish journalists there to get mm. the maximum impact he was just playing for time he does way more press than, than or certainly Joe Schmidt does so sometimes he's gold, other times mm. he goes down the, rabbit holes like The that. point Rory is saying about the game changing in the modern game, of course there's loads of backs that could play in, uh, as back rows, there's loads of back rows that could play as, as wingers, absolutely. There's, there's, there's a ton of them that could do that in the modern game, but you get into the technical side of it then. We saw what happened with um, Bergamasco. Uh, Bergamasco playing yes. there, but also um, the rugby league player who played for England. Oh, Burgess. Uh, Sam Burgess as well. He was being messed around six, twelve, six. 12. Playing the back row is a different thing. I think a back row can play if he's quick enough. Could play in the wing or on the wing more than a back coming into. Dennis Leamy went out centre for a period in, in two thousand under Alan Gaffney with us because um, we had issues there and problems with injuries. And he played a couple of games as a centre. David Wallace played in the wing in the Celtic. Cup final against the Scarlets at mm. uh, one stage. Um, so and he ended up out there in yeah, the Italy ended game out there. That time. So I think back rows can probably do that, but the technical side of the breakdown is an issue if you're Jack Knoll would get blown away as a wing forward. If any of this was a good idea, but he's, he, he wouldn't be doing it in a Rugby World Cup year, right? Like he'd have he done it two years ago if this Adrian, was... He won't do any of this stuff. Right. He, no, he's a squad there. The squad they've picked for the Ireland, for the Six Nations, a very strong squad. The Vunapola brothers back, Joe Launchbury back. Jack Clifford is back. He's a really good player who's had his injury problems. Um, Tom Curry is a really good seven. I think Underhill being injured is a, is, is, is a loss for him. But I think they've loads of options. Um, yeah, it's a really good squad. Um, is it close to 2017 levels here in terms of the potential of England in the Six Nations? Um, yeah, I think so. They're, they're very strong. Um, there's a lot of talent there. The issues we have with the English players is their club form sometimes and Probably it is a legitimate argument, the amount of games they play. The problem for Eddie Jones is when Ireland played England at Twickenham last year, the players were bashed to pieces by him. Every single, um, and that's what I was hearing in Twickenham, how right. hard they trained throughout that Six Nations. They were in full-on contact every week. Um, the Tuesday or the Wednesday of the, I think it was the Wednesday of the Irish game, they did something like an hour and a half of full-on contact. Um, and you've got to experience that to understand how much you can take out of the body it's like playing a midweek game and sometimes the training sessions take more out of you because you actually have more direct impacts 
in those small drills where you're doing a rucking drill or one-on-one tackling, you can actually hurt yourself and physically kind of get lots of bumps and bruises in those training sessions. The modern game has to, and, and the International Rugby Player Survey will tell us that, mm-hmm. players want less contact in training. They want to play less matches, particularly the English ones. Our player welfare programme is, is exceptional here, and it's the envy of, of most of the world. Um, England have got to sort that out themselves, because on paper, they're a team that can beat anyone at any stage, and make no bones about it, you could not underestimate that group coming to Dublin next week. Um, and if they get it right, they're a very, very dangerous proposition. But the key for England and Eddie Jones is is learning from some of his mistakes. Um, that was a championship decider last year, and, and he believed at that time that to have full-on contact and, and the players ripping shreds out of each other was the best preparation for Ireland, as opposed to Ireland probably did no contact, very little contact mm. that week, and were fresh. And I think that's the kind of voice of the players nowadays is that they've got to be fresh. There's a certain amount of contact you have to do in a week's training. Some of that can be on pads and stuff. It's it's different. I genuinely remember doing drills sometimes before in a three or four meter gap um, width and a player standing in the middle, four or five players, and you had to go through this drill and it was literally no space to go. It was just trying to run out over people or getting dumped back in your backside. And... Um, so contact and training is, is something that in the modern game that needs to be tailored a little bit. You do need it at times. We get into the games. May as well. Yeah. Uh, we're going to start with Munster Exeter, which is at uh, Toma Park tomorrow at half past five, lads. So get your thoughts on this one. Like Munster, looking at the pools, they're the, I think, the lowest points total of any of the pool leaders. It's, but at the same time, it's almost, it seems to me, perfect conditions for a Munster team. It's winner takes all, obviously, against Exeter. Yeah, well, they'll find out tonight whether the home quarterfinals is on the card. So if Montpellier beat Edinburgh, I think that it opens up. Right. Um, and I think more, like that Montpellier team are more than capable of going to Edinburgh and winning. So um, they'll know what, what faces them. But like, I think it's going to be Edinburgh away in the quarterfinal. And Murrayfield is hardly the most um, intimidating of away venues. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they, and, you know, they, they play there all the time as well. So that's... It's a fairly, as as a as away quarterfinals go, I think that they'd they'd back themselves. So they were, um, so they're mostly the, for most of the eighty minutes they were a better team in Exeter and probably left it behind them, but then got away with it in the last couple of minutes as well. They, you know, it was it was, a, it was a great game, but it was a strange game. Um, Omani's, a, you know, presuming he's out, Omani be a big loss, um, and I think that's been downplayed a bit this week, which is which is strange. Um, it's only when they get out there they'll, they'll realise what they're missing with him because mm. he's been in sensational form. But if Clude comes, sorry, I, I presume they won't pick Clude because they need a line-out option. So it probably maybe Witcherly or yeah, Witcherly who was outstanding against Leinster. So um, there's a couple of variables in it. But if they're, if they're anywhere near as good as they were last week, I think they'll get the job done at home. And if Edinburgh do lose, uh, sorry, if Edinburgh do win tonight and the quarter, home quarter final is off the table, regardless, they only need a, a, a losing bonus mm. you know, and, and stop extra getting four tries. Mm. To get through, I can't see Exeter getting the four 0 split or the five one split that they need. They might get a win, but I, I just don't see them getting enough. Quinny, what are you thinking? Um, it's going to be tricky, I think. Um, but <sighs> Exeter have been poor in this in this competition. The loss away, I think they got a bit shell shocked maybe by the intensity Munster brought in in round one. Um, and you know, sometimes there's they talk about the Premiership being the best league in the world. It's a very intense league, there's no doubt about that, but sometimes I don't know if the quality is there. Um, they are the current league leaders, four points. Yeah, Exeter and Saracens <coughs> have kind of bucked the trend, haven't they? They've been the ones who have consistently been good, but 
Exeter, they've been in Europe five times since, since they got promoted and um, they haven't won a knockout game. You know, they haven't got into the knock. They've got to the quarterfinals once and they, haven't, they were beaten. Um, they fluked into it about two years ago on 16 points at the end. Um, so they've been disappointing. I think they see this as one that this is, I sense this is a kind of a throw the kitchen sink at it and hope for the best. And we're not expected to win. And that makes them quite dangerous because they're a quality side and they've won on the road a lot in the Premiership in the last number of years. So um, Toman Park is not just going to win this game for Munster. They've got to play well. I think they're in good form. They're full of confidence. The last couple of weeks have been brilliant for them. Um, the way Carberry responded after Cast and, and the way he's played, the way he makes him tick, having Chris Farrell back is important. Tommy O'Donnell has been really important for him. He was really good last week again. Byrne and Clote, or Byrne and, and um, Klein in the second row have been arguably the form second row partnership in uh, in yeah. last weekend. You know they were brilliant, yeah. and I think they offer them that real kind of uh, balance as a second row. Byrne has just been sensational, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah, he has. No, he's and his, his post stretch just makes such a difference to them. I just I hope they keep their foot in the pedal. Yeah, because the, they, they, they during the early stages, Rory, the only issue is themselves here yeah, tomorrow. Oh, absolutely, because they they went out and that performance in Exeter was excellent, and the following week they weren't great against Gloucester. Cast at home didn't like actually at home they haven't been fantastic in Europe this year, whereas their away forms got more headlines. So you just you know they were good against Connacht, they were brilliant against Gloucester. You just hope they can sustain that and then you know break for the internationals you on ju- a high. You just think if they'd if they'd won that game in Cass, we we spoke about the injustices that happened, yeah. but also their own management and their own performance. They could be looking at being seeded one or two tomorrow. Yeah, just and, on the and that and that would actually give you a home semi final this year. Yeah, so it's it's a v- that Cass game, and I know I keep going back to it. Could be very, it's done now, but it could be very costly. So is the game in Sandy Park. Ju- just on uh, the Tiber, in case, and you mentioned the line out there as well. Uh, Keen Tracy writing in, in your paper this morning that if the Six Nations had started last week, we would have been, from an arts perspective, we would have been missing our two main line out callers in Devon Toner and Ian Henderson. How important is it from a provincial perspective that James Ryan has started calling line outs for Leinster and Tyburn is getting involved in a similar uh, area from a Munster perspective? It's important for any second row to be able to call line outs, in my opinion. I call a fair few lineouts when I played with Munster Ireland over the years, and um, it frustrated me at times that you think, well, it's not my job to call the lineouts. I think having the ability to call the lineouts mean you understand the lineout really well. You understand, and you, 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 it takes a little bit of time for some guys. Why were you calling them? If well, you were saying it wasn't your job to be doing it? No, it was. I shared them at times with Paul. I would have called a lot of the short lineouts because we did f- uh, four-man lineouts with me standing at halfback, where I'd step in and out of the lineout. Five-man lineouts with me at halfback. Six-man lineouts with me at halfback. Um, and Paul would manage to call the bigger ones, you know, the full lineouts. And obviously, he went on to be one of the best lineout callers and best tacticians in a lineout in world rugby himself. And Matt Fielder always spoken about how good they were. Ben Kay was a brilliant line-out forward for England and Leicester. Dunnick Ryan is someone who, uh, I think I remember it was about three or four years ago, five years ago when Paul got injured for the Scotland game in Dublin. I think he was 13. And he had to come in and call the line-out straight away. And it was a real kind of baptism of fire, but he had learned a lot about the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I say, when I go back to the original point, if you have the ability to call the line-out, it means you understand the line-out. And the more forwards you have, even props understanding the line-out, the better. So they can see a little bit of space themselves when they're that kind of keyed into where my man is going to probably call it. 
there's two spaces here and you know they're switching on a little bit the old traditional way was well I'm a prop I just I don't have a lot to do or I, I just lift and the guy at the tail line of the seven had his hands and his hips but that you know has changed over the years everybody needs to be really clued in so I think any second row that plays now at any level you ideally some of them do it naturally than others they just they want to boss the line out yeah they're, they're, it's part of their role to make them take and they believe it we can be one here there and everywhere but every second row nowadays in my opinion should be have that ability because if one guy goes off he can take over and um, like Devin Toner was someone who was quiet when he kind of started playing with Leinster in Ireland and he, you, he didn't he, he played a good bit with Paul as well and Paul would have still called the lineups but he's someone who run, has run the Leinster lineup superbly in the Irish lineup as well Henderson started doing it at the Lions Tour and um, does it for Ulster now as well. So the more guys you can get having that ability. So it's not just about being the dominant one. It means everybody understands. So the more guys, back rows as well, who have that ability to be able to say, you know, I, I'm going to call a few lineouts if need be. The, the other technical area that's kind of touched on in the papers this morning, and I know you were at the press conference, Rory, is Josh van der Fleer's quotes, and I guess we can start talking about uh, Leinster now. What, what was he saying exactly about not getting carried away with the idea of becoming David Pocock? He was, yeah, I, I just, I think the major thing that he had to work on was was getting in over the ball. I think that's what Levy and O'Brien have over him. He's probably the, the, the best tackler of the three, and he's a very good carrier as well. I love the way he accelerates into contact, but he probably isn't as good over the ball. He's not as strong over the ball. Like Levy's you know, incredible at it, but it probably gets him injured as well. So he was trying to, he was talking about how he was trying to get better in that area, and Lancaster took him aside and said, look, you can't go chasing this. You got to identify the time. So you know, Pocock is just a natural. He gets in over the ball. It's what he does. It's, it's his role. But Van der Fleer has about ten roles to do in the Leinster setup in the Ireland team. So it's just don't go into every breakdown because we need you in the defensive line. So he's he's trying to learn to identify the ones that he should go into, and, and and I think that's a skill that players probably get from experience as well. So he's getting better at it. I still don't think he's at the level of the others, but he brings so much to the table in other departments. But I guess when you're like they can only take five back rows to the World Cup. Um, if O'Brien, Van der Fleer and Levy are fit, I think Van der Fleer misses out personally. Um, so he's trying to get himself better in that department so that he's given himself as good a chance to go to that World Cup as possible. And, and he's, getting, he's becoming harder and harder to leave out. Um, right now, I'd say he's going to start seven against England because he's the man in position and he's fit and firing. O'Brien might come back in t- tomorrow's game, but um, I'd say probably on the bench if he, if he does. So um, Yeah, he was just talking about you know, basically upskilling and trying to get better, but doing it smartly. One of the other sort of lines that was coming out of that uh, press conference yesterday was John Fogarty talking at length about the sort of coldness of Leo Cullen's selection and with Jack McGrath particularly missing out in the matchday squad, I think, entirely um, last week. I mean, it struck me actually that uh, Fogarty talks about what an amazing reaction McGrath had to it and he was brilliant about the place and he was helping cajoling everybody else and helping them along the way. But at the same time, like if you're Jack McGrath and you've missed out in the squad entirely, given from the heights that he's come from, it might be the sort of day or the sort of week that you're thinking, actually, my future belongs somewhere else. It was a big call. I think it caught everyone by, by surprise a little bit. But um, I think the story we were hearing is Ed Byrne was flying it and flying it in training. And sometimes, you know, we, we, we all buy into reputations and say, well, he's such and such an international. He starts normally and then someone jumps out of, out of nowhere. So Ed Byrne is not going to sit back and say, well, I'm happy to be behind Keane Healy and Jack McGrath. He's obviously thrown down the gauntlet and he's caught Leo Cullen's eye in some way and maybe he felt that you know, it was uh, a little bit of a shake-up for Jack McGrath that would, would kind of drive him on to, to get his standards high maybe again if they had dropped. It's all speculation. You think 
a year and a half ago, he was. I felt he should have been starting for the Lions, um, and he came off the bench in the three tests, and he was brilliant. And um, and it was nothing between himself and Healy. Very and little, yeah. And Vunapolo, even who was who was the, the man in possession of the of the, of the Lions jersey, you know, there was an argument to start Jack mm. ahead of him in the the third test anyway, definitely. Yeah. But um, he's a great player, and I think it's good to hear that their response there was one of anger and frustration, which is natural yeah. for players when you lose out. I think he's back. I think he's in the team for, for tomorrow. Yeah. I think it was one of the things they took. I think he, I think he's starting. I think. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's kind of that smart management. Take him out and then put him in. And Jesus. but it, um, I believe it, after the 2016 Pro 14 final defeat, they had a big you know soul searching kind of. You know, it was a terrible season. Leo Cullen and his management team. One of the things they said was, if the young guys are going well, we're not putting guys in based on the caps that they've won because it's not. We need to go reward form. I think the final. I think a couple of players were picked who probably weren't fit or firing ahead of players who've been going better. Yeah. And the following season, Rob Kearney was picked on the bench away to cast. Um, I can't remember who they picked ahead of him, but Nasiwa started with O'Loughlin and Byrne, who were very new on the wings. And that was a kick on the backside for, for Rob Kearney. And he now he's the number, starting number 15 again, but it's just one of those <coughs> things that you've got to be a bit more... Um, they've decided, decided to be more ruthless and to reward form. And it's, it's paid dividends for them, because whenever they go with the young guys, it works. They need just a draw to top the pool. You're heading over to that game, I think. Yeah, and doing that, the the Ulster game on Saturday and the the uh, Wasps game on Sunday, I just can't see any reason why Wasps would beat them. Like Wasps are, are so mm. way out; they're just way out of the running. They're they had a week of losing players, signing players. They just seem to be all at sea. So um, they'll probably put up them for forty minutes. But you know, even you know, if they get O'Brien, Henshaw, Carney back on 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 deck this week as well, you know, Toner will be back. Toner should be back. I mean, they'll want to play with the with the game in two weeks. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think they'll Portugal want, next week. So they'll want to play. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They seem to have come through that little bit of a blip potentially as well. Uh, in good fettle, Ulster obviously uh, Leicester on Saturday at half past three and a bonus point win here. Quinny takes all the guessing out of the equation from an Ulster point of view. Tough got though. I just think a win will put them through. It'll definitely right. put them through in second place, and they're on eighteen points. If they get to twenty-two, they're they're guaranteed mm. to be in the in the last eight. Um, I I just don't know what's going to happen with Leicester. Do you? It's, no, it's there's, and there's more chance of a Leicester performance than a Wasp performance. Absolutely, because of the tradition and maybe the anger and the frustration that's there. That mm. um, their form has been terrible. I think they've lost seven in the Premiership and um, just one in in, in 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 Europe. It's they've won, only one win in Europe. So I think it's um, to go to Scarlets last week and be beaten thirty three ten. They were thirty three nil down at one stage. I think if I was a Leicester fan, I'd be really concerned with what's happening there at the moment. But they will probably throw out as best they can. Jordan Murphy will to try. And they need to get a win and get a bit of a feel good. They, they want a springboard into their their yeah. next couple of weeks. On there, I think Jordan Murphy will be targeting this as a you know if you beat these lads, you can kind of go into. I them. think it's a great chance for Ulster, isn't it? If they yeah. if they keep it together, now Cooney and Burns, they'll need them. It's the kind of game they've lost in the past, yeah, yeah. in the last couple yeah. of years. It's kind of kind of one where they slip up. They got a big a win test, last week. And a they, test, yeah. they kind of fell over the line a bit against Racing. Their game management has been an issue for them. Um, they started well in Racing and just lost control of the ball as well. And last week they nearly, you know, the crowd got them over the line at the end and a few few mistakes from Racing, but. They've got to they've got to play well here. You know, you you think just go to Leicester now. They've only won one game. It's just a case of Le- Ulster. They'll get the win, but it'll be different. I just sense you're right. It'll be different than Wasps. There'll be a real kind of anger and a, a pressure on the Leicester players to perform. 
and um, they'd make it tricky for Ulster. We'll chat next week, lads, see if you're right. Thanks, William. Cheers, Cheers. Games over the weekend, Rory and uh, Alan. Uh, so we've live commentary, by the way, of the uh, Wasp Leinster game as well on Sunday. And uh, in the commentary box there is going to be Conor Morris alongside uh, Brendan Mackin and Jake Heenan. So do tune in for that. Uh, next up, Donegal manager Declan Bonner and Carlo Boss, Tarlick O'Brien, discussed the impact uh, on last night's show that Gaelic's experimental rules have had on their preparation for the league and the championship. Well, we've trained with the rules in mind. Um, I know a lot of counties aren't using the new rules, but we certainly decided uh, we couldn't afford to take the rules. And we've been training under the new rules. Uh, not saying we're after them, because I don't think we have. And uh, that's the point we've had to take. Um, you know, again, it's it's out of our hands. Um, I think the referees are finding it difficult as well. I think there's a lot under on on their plate trying to manage the game as it is. And these are additional demands on them and they'd want eyes in the back of their heads for the one of times, mm. you know. Um, it's, it's, I think it's really, really putting too much pressure on referees. Publicly, referees are saying yes, they're supported, but privately, it's a different message that they're giving to coaches and managers. Declan, how have you approached it over the last few weeks? Listen, we, we haven't really done a huge amount on it, to be quite honest. Uh, I, I felt from day one, especially the hand pass rule, it just wasn't workable, to be mm. quite honest. Uh, we'd have to do this, uh, a bit of work on, on some of the other stuff, but in terms of hand pass, it was just you, know, you, you had to bring it up and mention it at matches and stuff like that. There, but uh, uh, it was just sort of just I mean apart from ruining a football game, it actually ruined a training session. It ruined you know you, uh, the ball is still coming back. It's still the same we, the same things you see during a football match. It's the same thing that happens in training. All of a sudden on the third pass, there's not none. The ball's been kicked back ten meters or whatever else, and you go again or it's kicked back to the keeper. And maybe that's one way of doing. Maybe cut out uh, again. Uh, penalise a pass back to the keeper or penalise something back back in your in your own half. Yeah, but, just get rid uh, of the back pass. Yeah, exactly. For starters, I, I, have yeah. Feeling, I have a feeling that probably will. Some of these rules will probably come through and for the National League, but we cannot undermine, I thought I spoke strongly on the National League. The National League is a very, very important competition. Mm. Yeah, that was from last night's show. You can check out that full chat up on our uh, YouTube channel. And Darrow Tool points out on uh, YouTube, no mention of AB's home province of Connacht which was a point that uh, Dara is listening way too much to Alan Quinlan. Uh, he made, he threatened us before he left the studio that we need uh, to mention the fact that Connacht... Compliment for your boys? Uh, the Connacht are off to, um, for Leinster, I would think so, yeah. I mean, being from Leinster, I am confident for my boys, yeah. Uh, Connacht are off to Bordeaux on uh, Saturday, and that is a three o'clock start. So that was the, uh, I mean, I don't know, thumped in the head by Quinny when we're done, so that's that. Um... Nearly time for us to wrap up, Owen, apart from the uh, new segment that we're going to bring your way every week, or in sort of little asterisks, if it works, we'll continue to do it. I mean, there was talk of the bari- bringing back the bariometer over the last few weeks. I wanted to bring back the bariometer. A lot of people do, Owen, but, you know, it's a tremendous item. A lot of people are very impressed with it. Super item, great item. A lot of people are very happy with it. I, I, I want to see more bariometer. Um, so this is, I don't know, what's the item called? What's this item called? Do we have a name for it? Well, we are going to pick your winners and losers from the week. That tends to happen in sports. There is often plenty of winners and there's often plenty of losers, including on OTBAM. That is a long name for an item. But, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> snappy and it's catchy. <laughs> so um, we're going to pick our winners and losers of the week is what's going on. And I'm going to start with my loser of the week. And it is just from that clip that you've seen there in the last couple of minutes, uh, including Declan Bonner on it. It's the hand pass rule. Uh, in GA, this is some action from the athletic grounds during the week. The three hand pass rules specifically we're following closely here. Sometimes given, sometimes not between Tyrone and uh, Derry here. A three-point win for Tyrone. They scored two frees, by the way, uh, after hand passing four times, uh, having one freeze off the back of it. In my view, an impossible job uh, for referees to officiate everything else and count hand passes 
uh, which I believe in itself is a full-time gig and I say uh, if they're going to press ahead with this and I mean by all accounts there's plenty of reasons not to take the gig out of the referee's hands. Yeah, I disagree. I think that was a pretty easy one. My loser of the week, I don't care what you do on this. Um, My loser of the week is uh, Cycling's team Astana because they produced this abomination earlier in the week. We are not going to go to that. Uh, We are going to go to maybe... Well, this item is working out tremendously well. um, We're going to go to maybe... Let's let's hear your winner first. Let's hear your winner. winner. Are we ready for my winner, Tommy? Is this, uh, This is a heavily supported item, so we are good to go. With my winner of the week, who is, uh, I mean, that's true. Uh, Shea Given is my uh, winner of the week. This is the former Republic of Ireland goalkeeping uh, legend, Shea Given, who's, of course, uh, coach now at Derby County. And they had their FA Cup third round replay against Southampton during the week. It all went to penalties, of course, in the end. I'm sure you were watching that rather than uh, Theresa May's Brexit speech. Just hold off on those images. But that is, uh, we're straight in with the first one. Um, People watching this game, they would have seen at the end on, I don't know if you followed it, but Shea Given, uh, did a fairly intense session with his uh, goalkeeper right at the end, his Dutch goalkeeper, uh, Roos. And he was going through in his iPad one by one, this is how the penalty takers are going to go. And it was very intense and it all seemed to be going swimmingly well until the actual penalties themselves took place. James Ward-Prowse was first up from a Southampton point of view and you can see goalkeeper going one way, ball going in the exact opposite way. You can see the sort of theme and the way this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Next up was the Republic of Ireland international Nathan Redmond. You can just about make up the ball above the R of the Emirates there. Again, goalkeeper going one way, ball going in the exact opposite direction. Next up is the Southampton uh, centre-half, Yannick Vestergaard. Surely this time, but no. Goalkeeper going one way, ball going the exact opposite way. So, so far, no good uh, for Shea Given until Matt Target, of course, steps up. And at that point, surely... Shea Given is going to get his way. Now, you could sort of argue here, but again, I mean, for me, that's right down the middle from Matt Target. It's ball just above the E of the Emirates, and goalkeeper is definitely slowly committing himself in the opposite direction. But then you're wondering, why have I nominated Shea Given as my winner of the week? Well, this is why, because he and, I mean, I think some other, there might be some other people involved in the Derby County coaching staff. Ultimately, it was all successful. Everybody's delighted. Derby County go through, Southampton go out, and Shea Given... You're the winner of the week. Yeah, congratulations, uh, Shea Given. Commiserations, once again, we've kind of got a, had a bit of a lag on this. I think we were just so lags, eager to get to Shea Given. Again, uh, it's Team Astana, Cycling's Team Astana, because they produced a music video and it's terrible. First ever Pro Cycling Rep 2019. New season is coming soon. This is Astana Pro Team. I'm Vino. Behind me is Martino. Okay, so I think we can actually kill that because uh, we're going to just absolutely harm people uh, who want to go through that. So props to Team Astana for buying into rap culture. They've got it all. They've got uh, the rap signs down. They've got the cool rhymes going on. And, uh, of course, some members of their team have got what all good rappers do, and uh, they partake in drug use. Of course, uh, team leader uh, Alexander Vinokurov, who uh, was done for blood doping a couple of years ago, he sees uh, Snoop Dogg smoke weed, and he's like, I'm going to have somebody else's blood in my system. So real rap legends there, Team Astana. Unfortunately, uh, the music doesn't live up to the rap hype, and you are our loser of the week. There he is, uh, Vinokurov, on the right-hand side. Uh, Our winner of the week this week uh, is Shane Lowry, because you know he's playing unbelievable golf at the moment, and I'm sure throughout his career... He's been in an array of hazards, he's been in the rough, he's been in bunkers, he's been in the water. But I don't think he's quite been in a hazard just like this, this week. Uh, yes, that is 
a landfill site, which is something I've never seen before uh, in, a, in a golf tournament. Uh, he is, that, this was Wednesday, this is when he shot a course record, uh, and there he is in an insane area of a golf course, something I've never seen before. He was lucky, though, because uh, if you look at Thomas Detry, he also landed up in the same area, and his uh, caddy had to pull a spinning machine off his golf ball to actually ensure that he could take uh, the next shot. So uh, congratulations to Shane Lowry, getting himself into a landfill site and still setting a course record, winner of the week. Like uh, OB, no? Out of bounds. I think that was in. How bounds. was a landfill site there, not out of bounds? There was some theory that uh, there was a lot of rubbish that was built up to the left of the first tee, and uh, they just didn't clear it because they didn't expect anybody. Oh, sorry, the fifth tee they didn't expect anybody to go Jeez, so far to the left. Uh, but clearly, two professional golfers have done so. One who just set a course record. Um, I mean, having heard you out, I'm sticking with my winners and losers of the week. But uh, you know, well, the. The hand pass rule is a sleeper of um, this year. We just wait for the public opinion to change. This, yeah, this item is definitely coming back. It was such a success this week. The land, uh, there's been a landslide of commentary about it, and people are people are loving it. Wow, oh, hey, that's instantaneous reaction to you right there. I'm very proud. Uh, upcoming uh, today and over the weekend, Brandon Driscoll is going to be in studio uh, later on this afternoon, previewing. Uh, all that rugby that we've been discussing there with the lads that's upcoming your way a little bit later on keep an eye on our social channels for that and on the radio from 7 o'clock this evening Friday Night Racing of course as always Jamie Codd is going to be joining Ger and Johnny in the studio a bit later on to discuss uh, a pretty interesting couple of months for him the Krabby Quiz of course is always coming your way on a Friday and then on Saturday live from 1 o'clock it's uh, going to be Premier League all the way in the company of Nathan and crew and on Sunday it's live commentary uh, with Wasp and Leinster, with Conor Morris, Brendan Mackin and Jake Heen, as we've been telling you. And before all of that, it's going to be Huddersfield against Manchester City uh, with Stephen Doyle and Kevin Caban. That is it for myself and Owen for this morning. Have a good weekend. Good morning, good luck. So, if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am. 